week on Log It, we're here to discuss David Lynch's Blue Velvet. And when it came out, lots of people offended by this movie. Very excited to talk about it. I'm here with my good friend Angelo and a very special new guest, Vlad Campbell. Hello. <laughs> Welcome, dude. Welcome. How's very excited Thanks to have you, man. Hey. How are you doing? You. I'm I'm great. Uh, look forward to this all week. So good, man. Let's let's get into it. Same. Vlad has been pumping it up all week in the text messages. He's been awesome so far so we're super excited to have him angelo how you doing man i am doing great i feel like i'm about to give you that david lynch weather report right now just sitting in front of the computer next to my window <laughs> it's 11 13 it's cloudy out here 58 degrees it's a beautiful day in los angeles the clouds are out and beautiful uh, that was a very good david lynch i'll cut that vlad you are a super talented guy and you do a ton of really cool stuff do you want to give a little intro i'm not going to try to do it myself because i don't want to sell it short um do you want to describe just kind of like what you do and yeah these guys call me vlad uh my name is drew but you guys call me whatever you want i'm sorry honestly. if you'd rather go but i should have no. asked you what name you wanted when i was posting stuff so i'm I sorry if that don't was care. Okay, okay no cool. no 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 the the point is like either name works but uh professionally i go by drew i was a filmmaker years ago and I actually went to school with Angelo and like we would make shorts together and stuff since I've kind of like toned it back and then I'm just writing so I'm trying to do like poetry fiction I just had my first novella published so oh, that congrats, was cool. man what's that yeah. called it's called the humanoid condition Cool. and other tales of Seamus Wolf so it has like short stories in it as well but it's actually like kind of started as script ideas I had that I knew I wasn't going to be able to film just budget wise and then just resource wise so I was Love like that. well I I might as well just learn to be a better like writer writer so because then there's no limitation with that just your own skill so yeah man that's kind of my point of the journey at the moment, but I like talking about movies still and watching movies. So when uh, these guys, uh, not only are they really good friends of mine, but they were giving me a chance to talk about uh, one of my favorite films, one of the ones that inspired me in the very beginning of my journey. I'm excited to hear your thoughts on it. I know you have a lot of insight that I'm excited to hear. Um, you have a couple zines out right now which yeah. I plan on ordering still. Do you want to just shout those out? You don't have to, but... Um, yeah, actually, so, I, you know, I started off making zines just for my myself and my friends, and, you know, just with white paper, black ink. But I've since actually learned, like, you can make, like, collaborative zines. So right now I'm... I started this magazine called uh, this zine series called Broken Galaxies magazine, yep. and it's um, science fiction, horror, and fantasy. But uh, I like to bring people from all around the world to contribute to it. So uh, it's not just my work that I'm trying to put out. I'm trying to like create a platform for others to send me their work as well. And I usually have a no rejection policy, so I only like turn things down if they clearly did not follow the guidelines or they're just offensive or terrible <laughs> lately <laughs> yeah exactly so i try so, to include everyone yeah i love that dude yeah broken galaxies is awesome i have at least one copy i have a few of your zines from over the years right on my bookshelf over there oh man so i love it man i'm, I'm looking forward to the new ones 
check out Vlad's stuff. Your Instagram is it's at Vlacinda underscore storm drain. So I don't know, maybe we could link it or yeah, we'll put it in in the Instagram for sure. I'll be posting stuff right along with you guys when the episode <laughs> cool. is out. So love it, dude. Yeah, they'll find me. Awesome. Yes, yeah, so check them out. Check out the zines. Support independent artists, man. It's awesome yeah. that you're doing that. Well, let's get into the show. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about with Blue Velvet. So we'll do a quick question just because this has become the standard question for guests. Cool. What's your favorite movie snack, Vlad? I'm pretty much a... If, okay, if I go to the theater, I'm a <laughs> yeah. classic popcorn guy. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. just popcorn and maybe a Coke or something. I don't like to drink beer when I'm at the theater because I feel like I have to pee. So I don't want to miss the movie, obviously. Yeah. But uh, if I'm watching a movie at home, like I'll maybe have some wine or a beer or something. And then I like like mixed nuts, maybe uh, some nice. chips. I guess it depends on the mood, but it's an appropriate Freudian snack for Blue Velvet. Yep. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just remember people making jokes about mixed nuts growing up. Remember that was like a bar thing. Don't eat oh, mixed yeah. nuts. Bar nuts. Yeah. Or something <clears throat> like that. Just be like, what? I don't get it. And they're like, oh, well, obvious now. <laughs> well, cool, man. Yeah. Most people like popcorn. I, I've realized that I popcorn is a weird movie snack just because it's loud. But we yeah. actually did a poll on it when we first did that episode. And people greatly voted against my opinion everybody loves popcorn so yeah that's it's not going away <laughs> and i do i like it it is weird though i'm just saying when you think about it you're like how did the it's a loud snack how right did it become a movie snack but i think is it just because it's easy to make large quantities of it and it's it's probably just because it's way cheap i think yeah. um yeah i think very early on it became the real like profit gainer for movies because it costs like nothing movie theaters actually don't make much money on admission yeah. uh, tickets they actually mm-hmm. make their money on concessions so yeah that's that's crazy especially in like the mega corp every movie is a disney movie age where disney has right. like basically all the leverage with the, the movie theaters yeah mm-hmm. the distributors are the yeah. ones uh making that money yeah so buy the popcorn everybody support good local theaters i guess mm-hmm. or good theaters my job is right next to a movie theater, the Lemley Five in Claremont. Solid theater. I, sometimes on my break, they'll sell you popcorn even if you're not seeing a movie. So I'll just go in there and buy a bucket of popcorn, share it with my coworkers, just give them some extra cash. And, you know, I love popcorn. Fun, so <laughs> They do have good popcorn, though, the Lemley Theater. They do. Oh, yeah. They do. During COVID, I remember you could order AMC concessions on Uber Eats, and I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. I almost did it, but it was too expensive. <laughs> they do. Yeah, it's like do. I want to support, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to last four then. Let's see. Angelo, you want to kick off last four? Sure. The last four movies I watched, I watched a movie called Big Night. Thanks to my friends at 564 Presents for hosting this double feature Friendsgiving potluck movies they had two movies Shout about out. food they did angley's eat drink man woman it's also mm. a wonderful movie first time watching it as well so yeah big night was directed by stanley tucci and campbell scott mm. from 1996 oh. with tony shalhoub about two brothers who are chefs who are running a kitchen and they get into you know family drama oh. it's pretty good Hello. actually it was actually a, a delight and 
I was tripping because there's a part where Isabella Rosalina shows up, but I thought it was just having oh. PTSD. I thought it was having PTSD from the movie. <laughs> <laughs> she I mean, just ran in naked in the background in a scene. <laughs> Luckily, she was very pleasant in the film, but there was a part that almost reminded me of Blue Velvet, which we'll get into later, that I was like, man, cool. Stanley Tucci has it easier than Kyle MacLachlan did in that one moment that we'll, we'll oh, talk man. about. <laughs> there was something similar, but I was like, oh, that's, that's nothing. That ain't nothing. <laughs> but it was good. It was a uh, definitely recommended if you're into like food movies and you have to yeah. definitely eat, have some food while watching it because you're gonna get hungry. Andy Z, you got to add that to your food. List. <laughs> yeah, that's. I was just gonna say that that'd be a good one for Andy to look at. Yeah, definitely perfect one. And the next one I watched in preparation for another movie, I rewatched Grindhouse the entire ep- the t- double feature, oh, okay. not not just oh, Planet right Terror, on. Death with the trailers, the, with the trailers, excellent. <laughs> It was a blast. I'm happy that they finally released it because back then they had uh, had to separate them on DVD back then. Yeah, really... it was, I think, to make more money. Yeah, to make more money because yeah. I guess it didn't do well back then. But I had such good right. memories uh, sneaking into that film back then because I was so desperate yeah. to see it. I was still like maybe 15 or 14 when that right. came out. And I had to buy a ticket for some Disney movie just to walk in to this theater. And had it was literally a gateway to like, because I don't, I didn't watch much Tarantino prior to that, and maybe mm. even Rodriguez. So it was kind of like a gateway for like both filmmakers, and, yeah, and also a gateway to the new Beverly Cinema because it felt like he, that whole movie was like a new Beverly experience just on, yeah. on its own. So it was a blast revisiting that, and I like both movies. I mean, I, I guess I would say Death Proof is still the superior one, but Planet Terror is a lot of fun. And it's cool. A lot of yeah. they both have shared like cross universe stuff in there. So yeah, I I love that, and I always like seem to find a different one each time I rewatch them. Yeah, so, it, it's yeah. a blast. Definitely one I actually would watch every year. Actually, from now on. Um, and so I watched that in prep because I went to Tarantino's brand new movie theater, The Vista, on Sunset, oh, which he bought right and acquired. And now he's showing every almost. I don't know if it's all new releases, but selective new releases in 35 or 70 millimeter at that oh, theater. Wow. So the first, I went to the very first screening showtime for Eli Ross Thanksgiving, which is very reason why cool. I watched Grindhouse was to prep for that. And I'm like, I got to yeah. watch it on film because the Grindhouse trailer was on film. I got to yeah. see it in that format, especially at Tarantino's theater. I heard it's really great. Yeah, I remember you saying like you thought it was weird that it's not going to be at the New Beverly, but I guess it's at the Vista. Yeah, because yeah. I heard from the grapevine that he's actually spending more time at the Vista now, like curating right. the screenings. Because the New Beverly, like they were saying, he hasn't been programming for a while because he's been like focusing on the theater and then also right. his tenth film that he's been working on. So he's right, been a right, busy dude, but. I'm happy they showed Eli Ross Thanksgiving. It was actually a blast. I actually had a fun time watching this movie, and it almost feels like the distant child of like Halloween, Black Christmas, and even Scream. It was like almost like it, it was like a mesh of all like a celebration of slashers in a way. Where I was very like, yeah, Eli Roth knows what he's doing. He this guy watches horror. He understands all the all the little stuff. Maybe some people might find it silly and over the top, but like it was fun. They did a good job. Like. For me, like slashers, they you have to like make me hate some of these characters for them to die. <laughs> so they yeah. did a good job in the beginning setting up like all these people are horrible, they're terrible people. So as as oh, it, yeah. as it plays out, it's like okay, this is this is a blast. So I definitely would recommend it, especially Thanksgiving season. I feel like this would be a maybe a new classic down the road. Who knows? Who knows? But I am excited to nice. rewatch it. And then the last film I watch is the movie we're going to talk about today. Is all right. So, and I saw it again, actually, yeah. I saw it twice this week just to get my mind nice. ready cool. for this conversation. Extra prepared. Yeah. 
So that is my last four. Yeah, that's good. I heard a, uh, I've heard good things about Thanksgiving, so I'm pretty pumped for that. Especially yeah. since we just had Slasher Tober kind of with Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, I'm pretty interested in that. Cool, man. Vlad, you want to do yours? All right. Well, don't judge me. My partner and I are big, big fans of a young lady named Aquafina. Okay, I know Caleb and I have had a discussion <laughs> about this. Uh, yeah. She's not his favorite, but. I'm. I guess I'm here to just maybe prove him wrong a little bit. I don't know. Bring we'll it. Bring it. <laughs> okay. So to start off with, we watched her newest movie. It's called Quiz Lady. It's on Hulu. It's a Hulu original. It's uh, stars her and Sandra Oh. And I didn't realize she actually. Uh, they actually both like co-produced it. Uh, it was written by in like uh, someone else, a different. I don't know her name off the top of my head, but it was written by the writer of the film and then directed by an, another woman, but they both produced it. And it's kind of a easy premise. Like they need money because their mom has like a gambling debt. So they have to pay off her gambling debts because her mom like left the country to escape the debt. Aquafina's character is like very like, she watches like a quiz show, almost like a Jeopardy type show hosted by uh, Will Ferrell. Nice. <laughs> So they have to, she's like a really into trivia and she's really good at it. So like, they're like, oh, let's just put you on the show. So like, that's kind of the basic premise. Really like the characters. So Aquafina, she's typically like typecast as like the kind of slacker, kind of messy girl, kind of, you know, but in this role, she was the response, even though she was the younger sister, she was the responsible one where Sandra O oh is like kind of the loose cannon like free spirit like i want to be an actress and like you know living out of her car like (laughs) that that type of sister and then you know she's the one aquafina is the responsible you know put together one with a good job and like yeah supporting the whole family so i thought that was cool just seeing her like in a more toned down role the movie's over the top but she's actually one of the more grounded elements of that film it's cool. See, it sounds like she's playing against type a little bit because, yeah, not to jump in too soon, but just to give a little context, I do think, I think Aquafine is cool. I do think she gets like typecast. I think that's one of the reasons I, I'm not as, I feel like she plays Aquafina a lot. So I, that does sound interesting. You know what yeah. I mean? It's not her fault necessarily. I mean, but I think with her, she kind of just found what works and then, you know. Totally. But yeah, like it's cool seeing her like go beyond that. And actually that leads into the second film. We watched Quiz Lady and then we're like, let's rewatch The Farewell. Oh, nice. Um, so that's that's actually a movie I love because, well, actually I saw it with you, Angelo. Yeah, was, I was going to uh, say. Mon- saw Monica it. and I, we traveled, took the train to LA and then because it wasn't playing near us. And then we met up with Angelo at Arclight and then we saw it for the first time with him. Yeah, it was um, pre-pandemic, I want to say. That was a while ago. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's another movie where she's a little bit closer to her normal character, but not yeah. not fully. Like, she's more, like, kind of melancholy. Like She's really serious in that one, actually. Like, really not, yeah, fun, it's, not doing her bits at all. She felt like a normal person. Right. And it was a really good movie, yeah. It's about, you know, her her grandmother living in china and she's like been diagnosed with cancer but like in chinese culture like sometimes you don't tell your relatives you just the family just kind of handles it 
Yeah. Uh, it, it's odd, but uh, to an American standpoint, but if it makes sense in context of the film, it, it always hit home with me, not only as a fan of her, but just um, my mother's Chinese. So like I kind of grew up in not the same type of family, but you know, the, there's definitely like character tropes that you see. <laughs> like I saw from like, oh, that's uh, that's my aunt. So and so that's my uncle. That's those are my cousins. <laughs> like, you know, that's it's. Cool. So and then you know I actually just lost my grandfather recently. So you know, thank you guys. It it happens. Uh, You know I've been with my family a lot recently. Just you know helping. We're all helping each other get through it. So like rewatching it again uh, just this past week is you know it kind of hit even closer. Yeah, exactly. So it's like one of those movies that kind of I rewatch it every maybe six months. A movie that really just feels like home to me and like it just feels like childhood like early adulthood like growing up that really is like the magic of movies i'll definitely i've wanted to see that since it came out because i heard really good things they actually uh just released it on netflix so perfect yeah i remember i it was hard to recommend it to people because like they would have to pay to find it somewhere like you know rent it or buy it and Mm. yeah actually my mother just asked me about it the other day and i Last night, I was like, oh, it's on Netflix now. So now it's easier to recommend to people who have Netflix. Yeah, that's awesome. I already said it, but that really is like the the best thing about movies is when they really can resonate with the soul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not to be cheesy, but you know, like there there are sometimes movies are something that give you that, make you just understand life or feel like you understand life a little more, feel a little more at peace with things and then feel like a little less alone with things, which is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those that it makes me feel a little bit differently every time I watch it, just depending on what I'm going through, like what's going on in my life at that moment. But it it always just feels like comforting to me to watch to see a family like with that dynamic and, you know, the different types of characters all interacting with each other just because they're family. I love that. I think I'm due for a rewatch too, so I gotta check it out again. Yeah, absolutely, man. Oh, I haven't seen it absolutely. since with you guys. That so was my only time I've watched oh, wow. it. Oh, okay. Left it in yeah. already, but yeah, I think I gotta watch it now, especially talking about it again. Yeah. So when we finished watching that, we had to lighten the mood a little bit. Still went with <laughs> yeah. Aquafina. Uh, we did Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Nice. So, oh, because yeah. I mean, you know, I, I have a love hate relationship with Marvel. Mm-hmm. Some movies I like, some movies I don't. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think they're making good decisions. Sometimes I think they're just not. <laughs> <But> <laughs> You're not allowed to be that level headed about it, man. You yeah. die hard or hate it. <laughs> this movie, Shang Chi, is like probably the last one they made that I loved. Is re- very rewatchable. Like I'll just put it on when I feel like it. Where you know a lot of the more recent ones like don't have that same. I don't have that same feeling, but Mm -hmm. yeah, it's cool. She is in it. She's kind of like his goofy sidekick and then, but they teach her to use a weapon, but I, yeah, Yeah. that's the main thing I like about it is it tells a cool, like Asian American or like young Asian person story where like, you know, it's them versus like the older generation, like how they're wanting the younger, the children to be more traditional. And then the children are like, I just want to be me. right you know so i thought that was cool and then it's definitely one of the more standalone marvel like you don't have to watch like there's references to iron man 3 obviously because i I won't give it away for anyone who's hasn't seen it and wants to see it (laughs) it's so random (laughs) beyond that like the story wise it's pretty like self-contained and that's what i appreciate about i don't feel like i have to watch like 15 movies just to understand this one 
Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think it's one of the strongest of the post-Avenger Endgame yeah. era, definitely. And I actually did want to bring this up when we talked about it previously. I really like Aquafina in this one. Like, it, it, mm. I think it she's balanced really well in the movie and it's a really fun movie. I, it's yeah. one I've actually, one of the only post end game Marvel movies I've rewatched just cause I'm like, yeah. that sounds fun, which right. none of them ever just sound fun. They're yeah, all like, oh, exactly. why would I, why would I ever watch yeah, quantum mania again? <laughs> or sometimes you'll watch it and like, Oh, it was fine. And then you rewatch it and you're like, Oh, that wasn't very fun. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> one thing I just, before we wrap up Shang-Chi, I want to add for the LGBT friendly listeners and viewers, at least, for me i don't know if they did this intentionally or if i'm just you know interpreted wrong but i thought it was interesting because there's no there's no love story beyond like the mandarin and his wife so like you know shang chi's mm. parents but beyond that yeah. there's no like the main character there's no real love story so like aquafina is like his best friend and mm. it's like stated to be platonic there's a little bit of chemistry with them but i feel like once they meet shang chi's sister when they go to Macau and meet her, I feel like her and Aquafina have just as much chemistry, but it's like left. It's they don't state it. It's very ambiguous. It's just kind of like, okay, yeah, it could go either way. So it's like kind of more all inclusive. Like, you know, we are just living in a more like open generation. So I thought it kind of had that, I guess for those who chose to look at it that way, like it has that kind of quality to it. They were giving each other some stares from what I remember. So I, I, think, you're, yeah, I think you're on point. Yeah. So, yeah. They, they just like, they kind of like got along right away. And like, <laughs> I thought, like at one point, Wakufina is being the damsel in distress. And then like Shang-Chi is trying to save her. And then he's, he fucks up. And then the sister comes in and saves her. And then Aquafina is <laughs> like, oh my God, my hero. That's right. Then, yeah, yeah. It's just like, I just thought it was cool. Like, it's like two like, like, you know badass asian girls like you know like yeah fuck these guys let's 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 kick these let's kick these uh these kung fu dudes ass <laughs> yeah and i like how you bring that up too about having like you know they're more platonic friends it's really refreshing to see that especially in a yeah. big movie like that you think they'd make them a couple or something in your traditional superhero movie or yeah. big action movie so it, it was nice to see that so that's a good good point to bring up on that film that doesn't get enough credit for that yeah yeah better than the force awakens where they just wouldn't commit to anything. They say they also didn't have any romantic relationships, but only because it was confusing. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think they had as much uh, intention with it as maybe Shang Chi did. I think one day Finn and Indiana Jones are gonna have to have like a like a head to head, like oh, who got with the most women. <laughs> <laughs> all right listen to me big deal i've had a big deal i've had, I've had uh, all these women if you watch the show don't watch it but if you watch the show uh, there's even more <laughs> <laughs> i just thought it was funny that in this is way off topic I'll, I'll i'll stop i promise but yeah this is the indiana jones show he's still indiana jones he's still like being indiana jones he's a ladies man like different woman in every episode oh maybe oh young indiana I, jones series. Not yeah just, oh, okay <laughs> i was like i was like indiana jones show but younger yes okay yeah but is this a new disney plus show <laughs> yeah no i don't know i guess this all just ties in with the point like there's just so much like there doesn't always have to be a love interest like no mm, for sure can, not yeah 
and then yeah the last one i did also was blue velvet the one we're talking about so cool um, yeah we'll save all that huh excellent <laughs> uh, did you like it no just kidding uh eh. <laughs> actually though how many times have you seen it me well, yeah yeah you know no <clears throat> infinite i i saw i'll I'll get more into like when i first discovered it once cool. we start the actual discussion cool. but yeah, um I yeah I first saw I was like 18 17 or 18 I think cool. and then it's one of those maybe once a year I'll rewatch it or like cool maybe every other year but it definitely like launched my like Lynch obsession for sure yeah so all right I'll do mine real quick last night I actually watched a few movies to give context my dad is in town it was kind of last minute but I was like yeah come you know, I do have to watch this movie for my podcast, but like, you're welcome to hang out and join. You know, it's Blue Velvet. Oh, oh wow. Da, da, da. Did he watch <laughs> it with you? He did. Oh, yes. so, And it gets worse. Just, I don't know what happened. I just picked the worst movies to watch with him. We So the last one we watched, we watched three movies yesterday. The Hills Have Eyes Unrated was the last one we watched. Oh, the remake? Yes, the new the new Hills Have Eyes unrated version, which also has some pretty... I mean, both movies have a guy nipple-obsessed, and it was just like, oh my gosh, you'd get to these scenes. I don't know if you guys have seen that, uh, the new Hills Have Eyes, mm. but there's some pretty terrible sexual assault stuff that's yeah. really gruesome and ultra. So it's just like, oh, what the heck was I thinking? I just thought it was like, I was just thinking of all the fun, like over-the-top murders and deaths. And or before that, we watched Candyman, which something about oh, yeah. Blue Velvet made me watch Candyman. And my dad was oh, like, my. that was an okay movie. And I was like, oh, no, Candyman's really great. Like, Philip Glass soundtrack, like, it's, mm-hmm. it's an incredible movie. And so I made him watch it, and he liked it. I don't know if he likes it as much as I did or do. Before that, we watched Blue Velvet, which was also really a fun one to watch with uh, a parent. And <laughs> definitely was like, yeah, I felt bad. I felt bad that I made him watch these with me. And But it was uh, it definitely added to the psychological impact of a lot of the stuff. Um, <laughs> and then yeah. the, the day before that, I watched one of my all-time favorite movies, Comfort Food, Best Tarantino film, my favorite, I should say, not best, my favorite, Jackie Brown. Oh, Hell yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Very good. Just Great love that movie. movie so much. I love, I think Max Cherry is my favorite Tarantino yep. character. Maybe oh, my yeah. favorite up there for favorite characters who I just like love. Every time I watch them, I'm just like, I want to be yeah. Max Cherry. Robert so Forrester, great, yeah. great yeah. performance. Great, so, great character. So good. Uh, I just, great. I feel, I just want to give him a hug. Like, <laughs> yeah. like oh, sorry. I'm sorry, man. Like, <laughs> But he's a good-hearted man in a world full of dumb dumbs and bad people. Like, and just mm. just so himself. Like, I just love how self-assured he is. And he's just not trying to prove yeah. anything. Mm-hmm. Really beautiful movie. Pam, Pam Greer's an, uh, amazing in it, of course. Mm-hmm. She's just amazing. Beetlejuice, shout out. Michael Keaton is also it's one of my favorite Michael Keaton roles. I think he's just, like, so fun oh, as yeah. that cop. Such, yeah. a, such a freak, and but so likable. Jackie Brown is based on a book, I believe. Yes. I don't know the title, but uh, the same author wrote other books, and there was an adaptation, a movie adaptation of one of the author's other books, and Michael Keaton plays the same character. Mm. I guess oh, it was like no kind of like almost like a nod, just to like maybe a connected universe, but like it's because it's like a reference like to the the author's other adapted work, which was Jackie Brown. So that character shows up in in both books so they're like oh it'd be fun to 
have Michael Keaton come back. So. That's cool. Yeah. Do you, do you know I the name of the other? The other. I haven't okay. seen it. We are gonna have to probably look that up. So yeah, it was written by Elmore Leonard, who did do right. a ton of other books that have been adapted into films. I think he did Three Ten to Yuma, mm. which is mm-hmm. a pretty great. The, the Christian Bale one is a pretty solid movie. Mm-hmm. And the the book that Jackie Brown is adapted from is called Rum Punch. So I wonder if it was, was the same name for the short film, but. Yeah, just love that movie. Love the music. Love um, it's just like a really sweet. It, I, I would pair it with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and like like the most uplifting and like positive Tarantino movies. Like I love mm-hmm. I love the crazier Tarantino yeah. stuff, but it just mm-hmm. doesn't. Sometimes it still leaves you with just like a little ooginess, right? Where these are very uplifting, in my opinion, and very just like sweet. Yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna bash Pulp Fiction. I know it's a good film i know a lot of people love that film especially young Mm -hmm. film students love that movie um but it's not a bad film but yeah pulp fiction is one of those movies there's just certain scenes in it which i'm not going to bring up they make me really uncomfortable let's just say i'm surprised i didn't pick it for a movie to watch with my dad last night yeah (laughs) yeah it's just um yeah, I, I agree. Like uplifting is the keyword. Jackie Brown and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like there dark things happen, you know, bad things happen, but overall it kind of leaves you in a a mood where you don't feel depressed. Yeah, you're excited <laughs> so, about it. It's very life affirming and human yeah. hu- humanity, pro humanity. That was a good way to describe a David Lynch movie a little bit. Very dark, but leaves you really feeling good. That was my last four. Well, let's take a quick break and we will get into David Lynch's Blue Velvet. It started with Bobby Benton's song, uh, Blue Velvet, which came out in 1964. But uh, I started getting these ideas from the song of a mystery that would take place in a small city in quiet neighborhoods. Then I had this desire to sneak into a girl's uh, room and watch her throughout a night, and possibly while watching I'd see a clue to a mystery. And then I got this idea for finding an ear in a, in a field, uh, and this ear would be a, an opening into an, another world. And then uh, I got a lot of other ideas like this, but fragments that finally hooked themselves together formed enough of a story so that I could uh, add in, the, you know, the missing pieces. But this took a long time. I've written uh, four uh, drafts of the script uh, over several years, you know, before I finally uh, got it uh, together uh, to film it. Welcome back from the break. We are here to talk about Blue Velvet. Vlad picked this movie. Uh, we were excited to have Vlad on. It was like, what do you want to talk about? And with Blue Velvet, like, yeah, totally. I've seen it once. I honestly did not remember it at all. I wouldn't have watched it with my dad if I did remember what happened. I really liked it this time. And it's just a movie that really affects you. Like, it's very visceral. But I want to hear why you why you picked it, why you love it. I know it's like one of your all-time favorites. So just as much as, as, much of a little... Uh, thesis as you want to give <laughs> okay um before i get into that i actually with your permission oh, yes. oh yeah you picked you just picked up a package during our break i did um so i know that the listeners can't see but i'm, I'm gonna tell it. you i have with me here a heineken and a plaps blue ribbon. <laughs> oh, good. yes what kind of beer do you like heineken, heineken? fuck that shit paps blue ribbon 
So I'm going to yeah. flip a coin <laughs> and decide which one I'm going to drink while I talk to you guys oh, about this film. Um, so I've got the you coin know I'm going to have to yell at you if it's Heineken. Oh, trust me. I want Paps too. So we're going to flip a coin to see if I'm going to be Jeffrey Beaumont this episode or if you guys are going to get the Frank Booth Drew. Oh, shit. So uh, <laughs> right, I got a coin. Uh, we got Georgie and an eagle. So what do you guys want? Tails. Uh, Tails for PBR. Or PBR, because that's the better one. Tails, yeah. Tails for PBR? Yeah. Okay. All right. Ah, it's heads. Fucking Heineken, bro. How could I love you? Heineken. But yeah, do you want to, I don't know, say as much as you want about it, um, just what, how much you love it or whatever, man. Uh, okay, so I I first saw Blue Velvet. I was 17 or 18. Um, after high school, I kind of knew I wanted to start studying film and eventually create my own shorts and work. Between uh, high school graduation and starting community college, I kind of put myself through like a sort of film homeschooling program. So I would uh, go out and acquire and watch uh, films I'd never seen before made by filmmakers that were considered like almost like movie, the movie world's like counterculture. So like, um, you know, directors like David Lynch. And uh, so uh, one of the first um, times I heard about him was like, my aunt knew I love Nicolas Cage. So she just on a whim bought a, a copy of wild at heart and gave it to me as a present i had never heard of it she had never heard of it at the time um and then she just gave it to me and then eventually i heard i think one of my classmates in high school talking about david lynch so i kind of and then he mentioned something about making wild at heart so i was like okay i want to kind of watch this movie i know i own it so i watched it and then when i you know started looking into david lynch more uh i started with wild at heart obviously and then uh the second was blue velvet and then uh racerhead so i watched those three films in that order to start and uh, i love all three of them especially the latter two blue velvet and eraserhead it not only got me hooked on uh david lynch's work as a whole but they also sort of became like a blueprint for kind of what i wanted to make like when I started making films. So it's definitely like I knew I could create like kind of worlds like this and like what you're seeing might not actually be happening or, you know, it, how it all kind of connects in a theme. And it's not always just point A to point B kind of storytelling. Like there's odd moments. There's very strange editing. And I, I just kind of fell in love with his uh, style of shooting a movie. No, I love that, dude. And Lynch is such a good entryway into like maybe like non-traditional like uh, narrative and um, kind of thinking about a movie in a different way. Like just I think the natural path for a lot of people in high school is you like blockbusters, middle school, high school. You know, you grew, we grew up literally going to blockbuster and get, you know, you pick all the fun, yeah. cool new movies and uh, you start to get these little gateway movies, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're like, oh, like a big one for me right after high school seeing Black Swan and just right. like, oh, yeah. The, the way he incorporated when you're like, oh, that was the, actually Black Swan, the play too adapted. 
into yeah. it and like the and so you're just like realizing there are these like how much more you can do with the script versus just a, a 90 minute blockbuster you know which i love 90 minute blockbusters i think that's an art in its own but yeah i love that yeah. lynch was one of your guys that because that's such a he's one of the best man yeah for me i think kind of what led me to like want to seek out more films like lynch uh was uh i think the gateway movies for me were probably like right after the summer right after i graduated uh, i watched like eight millimeter and donnie darko yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. and bo oh, yeah. both donnie. of those movies are kind of like like okay these this is kind of more what i'm looking to make so it scratches like, a niche that you know i yeah. want to pursue and then i know a lot of people describe donnie darko as like a teen comedy if david lynch made one so that that's like another like oh david lynch who's this guy <laughs> donnie darko is one of those for sure and like another one for me was actually Eraserhead. i remember mm -hmm. that was one where i watched it and i was like what the fuck is this dude yeah. and i was like i know this is a good movie because it's it's like i can feel it messing with my head but i definitely did not get it and it's it's one to speak to the power of david lynch's like imagery and like subconscious like awareness and like his ability subliminal kind of messaging Eraserhead I've seen one time. It was in like 2011, maybe. I've, I haven't rewatched it since, but it's one that I remember vividly. It's, I feel like it's, I remember it more better than some movies I watched like last week. And it's one that I think about a lot. Like when I'm watching a movie, it's one that I it pops into my head and re movies remind me of Eraserhead a lot. Yeah, just such a cool director who's like, managed to bring like true like weird movies to like a mainstream audience yeah and i know with blue velvet in particular like he had just made dune and dune like you know is a film that he says is his least favorite of his own films and it's understandable like he said he wanted to make something that he connected with and i think he did connect with the dune novel and uh he had a lot of ideas for it and then like i think they kind of when they cut the movie because he didn't have final cut he wasn't yeah. involved in that so i think when they kind of made their cuts to it he kind of just Lost killed it for own. him yeah so yeah. i know when he went to uh work with uh dino de Laurentiis, uh he mm, yeah. he i think he took david lynch said he like took a pay cut for this film just so he could have final cut so he could have final creative freedom like over you know what he wanted the story he wanted to tell mm -hmm. and, it, and it like worked which is awesome um and i i saw this one interview where he was talking about making blue velvet and the failure of dune and like what it was like coming out from dune and he said something really cool and very david lynchy but he was like it was very like liberating like for me the failure set me free in a way because now i could do whatever i wanted because there was only i could only go up from here cut the budget and, uh, but I had freedom. And I, when you have a failure, it's in some ways kind of beautiful because there's nowhere to go but up. And it gives you a sense of freedom. So that was kind of beautiful. And I really enjoyed working on Blue Velvet. And I was telling somebody today that there were 13 films Dina was making and we were the lowest budget uh, the least regarded um, uh, of those films. And so it was off everybody's radar, a very good sense of freedom all the way through.
it's just a really cool way to look at it because the Dune story is a huge bummer. I actually really love the original Dune, the David Lynch Dune. Same. There's actually um, <clears throat> a fan edit on YouTube where the guy has taken all of the extra material, deleted scenes, anything he could pull, and made it into a more faithful edit to the original vision as much as he could and a little mm-hmm. bit more, um, I think, closer to the book and in the the – uh, layout of the film but it's really good it's like three hours but it's it's awesome yeah. and and adds a ton of depth to the film that was lost in the studio cut yeah i know um david lynch like i knew he had a lot of love and respect for the the books i know like his vision was very true to its telling and uh i think at one point he was even so uh invested in it that he was certain there would be sequels and like he was looking forward to developing those but um you know obviously when the movie came out it uh it was a disappointment to him as a as a filmmaker and that that's understandable like you know when you have a vision and it doesn't get told the way you want because you know it's at the end of the day it's a product mm. yeah and it's crazy, right? He like right before he did Dune, he was almost like in talks to do Return of the Jedi. So it's kind of crazy that like yeah, in another yeah. George Lucas uh, had him come out, and they had a little meeting. They hung out and, at a salad uh, bar. George Lucas kind of yeah. George Lucas kind of explained the Star Wars universe to David Lynch, and David Lynch told him like, "Well, George, if you're so passionate about it, why don't you just direct it yourself?" <laughs> I was asked uh, by George uh, to uh, come up to see him and talk to him about directing, which would would be the third Star Wars. And I had next door to zero interest. (laughs) But I always admired George. You know, George is a guy that does what he loves, and I do what I love. The difference is... What George loves makes hundreds of billions of dollars. <laughs> so I thought I should go up and at least visit with him. And he, he talked with me for a little bit, and then he said, I want to show you something. Now, right about in this time, I started getting a little bit of a headache. Just a, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. So he took me upstairs. And he showed me these things called Wookiees. <laughs> and now this headache is getting, you know, getting stronger. <laughs> and he showed me many animals and different things. And then he took me for a ride in his Ferrari for a lunch. And George is uh, kind of short. So he was, his seat was way back and he was almost laying down in the car. We were flying through this little town up in Northern California. We went to a restaurant, not that I don't like salad, but that's all they had was was (laughs) salad. Then I got a really, uh, almost like a migraine headache. And I could hardly wait to get to home. And I, even before I got home, I kind of crawled into a phone booth and phoned my agent. I said, there's no way, I know no way I can do this. He said, David, 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 calm down. You don't have to do this. And um, so George, bless his heart, I told him on the phone the next day, 
that he should direct it. It's his film. He invented everything about it. But he doesn't really love directing. And so someone else did direct that film. But um, I, did, I called my lawyer and told him that I wasn't going to do it. And he said, you just lost I don't know how many millions of dollars. <laughs> It actually reminds me of Spartacus, the way he like kind of disowned the movie because of the studio interference. Because I, I know yeah, that yeah. one, Kubrick comes kind of like, that's not my movie. Like, I, yeah, technically I directed it. But uh, another thing I wanted to touch on, this connects to an older episode of ours, Maximum Overdrive. Maximum Overdrive was another one of the DEG movies when De Laurentiis split from, um, I can't remember what studio he was with, but split from the studio, I think. Miriam? No, I don't know. Was it uh, and tried to Ma- Lionsgate know. maybe? Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. Tried to start his own company. They made thirteen films, including Maximum Overdrive, Blue Velvet, Evil Dead Two mm-hmm. came out from DEG. There's a few other classics or like cult classics at least. Yeah. But according to David Lynch, this was the lowest priority of the thirteen movies and had the right. lowest budget. They were actually filming partners with Maximum Overdrive. They both filmed in North Carolina mm. and. Apparently, the two casts and crews would hang out behind the scenes because they were both literally like sharing locations and filming on the same street a lot of the time, uh, which is hilarious because the outcome, the product of both those movies is such an extreme difference. But literally, they were being made same time, same place. And then isn't that's the one, if I'm not mistaken, that's the one Stephen King directed himself, right? (laughs) Yeah, wrote and directed. Yeah, I remember the trailer. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. (laughs) He's just saying like, yeah, everyone made my my books into movies, but this time I'm going to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it took some shots at kubrick i believe oh, the shining you know, famously hated the shining but that's all covered in maximum overdrive listen to that episode if you care to but yeah so uh blue velvet where do we start with this what do you guys think where do you guys want to jump in well i was also gonna add too because uh thanks to drew he he got me into lynch and i think it was blue velvet was the movie he said go watch blue velvet and let that be your you know gateway as you're saying i was talking about gateway movies because prior to that i was only into you know like the anderson movies wes anderson paul thomas anderson so i was right. still like after high school which, you still, know yeah which was great because you kind of like got me into wes anderson and that so like it was kind of a trade-off like we swapped interests a little bit, but yeah, dude, I, I remember those days really well. And like, um, I, th- I just thought, I think I recommended blue velvet specifically because like it's, it feels Lynch. It's, it's a hundred percent a Lynch movie mm-hmm. it's set in a Lynch world, but it's just like more accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, it has a story that's easy to follow. It has like, you know, it gets uncomfortable at times, but like for the most part, it's, pretty self-explanatory yeah the main plot and then then once you've seen it a couple times you get into like those nooks and crannies those uh hidden meanings uh connections with other things Mm -hmm. but yeah like for a first time viewer it's like easy to understand and then you can get into it further upon revisits yeah and i remember loving it so much and i remember after like i yeah i dived into Racerhead, and then i dived into elephant man just i tried to do his worst chronologically after that and then became a huge yeah. twin peaks fan got obsessed with that show and thanks to this movie this movie was like the seeds for that that show so like yeah it's just the perfect lynch like starter kit like just watch blue velvet see how you feel about it and then go from there yeah 
definitely a great one for like for people to get in. I would say, yeah, Blue Velvet's a good one to start off with. And then if you like that, then yeah. Yeah. Going on any direction you want, I guess. Yeah. yeah. You can't just show someone that's never seen a movie like that eraser head and then expect them to think it was good yeah. afterwards. Because <laughs> like it's it's while I love it, it's not a movie for everyone. Yeah. No, I agree. Way less accessible than Blue Velvet, like you're talking about. Right. Yeah. So I guess we'll start with Jeffrey Beaumont then. Jeffrey Beaumont's played by David Lynch's favorite, Kyle McLaughlin, uh, famous uh, agent. Uh, yeah. What's his name? Dale Booth? Cooper. A special. <laughs> Dale Cooper. Booth. <laughs> oh, Booth. Frank Booth, you're thinking oh, I, of. Uh, Frank, oh, yes, there it is. I don't know where that came from then. Yeah, <laughs> agent Dale Cooper. <laughs> yeah, one of the best roles. One of the greatest characters. I think he's a very you know fine actor, number one. And I like him because for like Jeffrey, He's a, he's um, got a kind of an innocent quality. He's curious. He's innocent, but he can he can traverse from one world to another. He gave me the script to look at, and you got to remember that I, that I mean, Dune was like the first screenplay that I'd ever read, and Blue Velvet was basically the second screenplay that I'd ever read. So I, you know, I still really didn't know what to make of it. But I thought it was incredibly charged, very erotic. I thought frightening kind of amazing like in in an overpowering way and frightened me and also sort of filled me with this desire to go into that world he's awesome in this he uh is living in what is it logger what is it uh wooddale lumberton lumberton he's living in the idyllic lumberton we open with like an overly uh perfect introduction to the town there's like a fire truck looking thing you know from the 50s 40s looking driving by and there's just a fireman on the side waving and smiling very like disneyland and the movie opens with his dad having a heart attack so that kind of sets up where his character's at. He's like, seems to be in really bad shape and um, doesn't seem like he's going to survive. I kind of wondered if he had already died at certain points and they just didn't tell us mm. yet. You do see him at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Yes, and yeah. he is he is happy and uh, yeah. alive. So again, this is a movie where you're seeing a lot of stuff through the point of view of the characters. When we're seeing the stuff with his dad, it's probably heightened through Jeffrey's right. point of view and the trauma, you know, that it causes i guess the movie really kicks off when jeffrey beaumont finds an ear mm-hmm. and yes that is a human ear <laughs> anyway i was at the hospital this morning and coming home through the field behind our neighborhood there behind vista i uh found an ear you did a human ear yeah i thought i should bring it to you yeah that's right let's take a look at it Yes, that's a human ear, all right. Let's take it down to the coroner's office and see what they make of it. Then I want you to show me exactly where you found it. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a human ear. Uh, and takes it to to the detective, the dad of Laura Dern's character, uh, Sandy. Mm-hmm. And the detective tells him to ignore it and just to mind his own business, to trust him on this, and he'll understand when it's all wrapped up. I know you must be curious to know more. But I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you not only not to tell anybody about your find, but also not to ask more about the case. One day when it's all sewed up, I'll let you know all the details. 
And Jeffrey does not do that. Jeffrey loves a mystery. He uh, can't help but pursue this mystery. Mm. And so Laura Dern's character tells him uh, a little bit more about the case and, and gives him some insight and tells him about an apartment building where a strange woman lives that was involved with the murder. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and so he decides to devise a heist. <laughs> Do you guys mm-hmm. want to jump in anywhere? We can talk about the heist. We can go. Well, that kind of sets the stage. So I think it gives us a little bit of a, uh, a foundation so we can jump around a bit if mm-hmm. we need to. So, I mean, I kind of have a little theory about Jeffrey, which I didn't. I Obviously, like the first several times I watched it, I didn't really think much about this. But uh, definitely more recent revisits, especially this one that I watched before we were doing the recording. Um, there's a scene where Laura Dern, uh, Sandy, kind of tells Jeffrey that she's not sure if he's a detective or a pervert. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. a lot of like I just kind of was originally under the impression Jeffrey just loves mysteries. He wants mm. to be a detective like he wants, mm-hmm. you know, he's training like he wants to be like Sandy's father, like mm. in his future. Um but he kind of like looks back and gives her a very odd stare before delivering a very vague and cliched response. You know, that's for me to know and you to find out. And he just yeah. said it with like just enough darkness in his voice that maybe this isn't a movie about a kid who wants to be a detective. Maybe it's a movie about a kid who's a pervert. And then now he's meeting Frank Booth. And now he's seeing, oh, that's my future if I continue down this path. Why? Well, and then he's crying like, why are there people like Frank? But it's really he's crying because he knows that he might be like Frank. So it's kind of like scaring him and making him plead with himself. Like, I want to be good. I want to be better. Yeah. So Frank Booth is the villain played by Dennis Hopper. Mm. He is uh, super freaky. So he is somebody who is uh, huffing nitrous oxide or something Mm. like that all the time. So he's super erratic, super crazy. Whenever he smokes, he goes in these like super or or inhales. He goes in these super erratic profanity laced rants. He's super obsessed with sex. He's super obsessed with just like a very freudian level view of sex one cool thing i i learned about this and you guys might know this so frank is terrifying the first time i watched it really the only thing that not the only thing but the main thing that stuck with me was frank booth and just how uncomfortable he made me feel and so it's a really really great performance but originally david david lynch had intended for him to be inhaling helium and wanted his voice to be helium squeaky and then and then Hopper was like, I can't act like this. It's too distracting when I hear my voice like this. So let me do it normal. And like, what if he's inhaling, you know, let me do it normal and then we can re-record. And then he's like, what if he's inhaling like nitrous oxide or something? And apparently David Lynch was like, what's that? And he's like, Dennis Hopper basically had to explain to him because Dennis <laughs> Hopper, I guess, had a history of drug use and had a decent amount of experience with this stuff. And so he explained to David Lynch what it was and how it affected people. And, and they both agreed it kind of played into the character and fit kind of how the character was uh, supposed to behave. Mm-hmm. Just have to say, I would kill to see the helium version. <laughs> and I, I, this movie is so freaky already, but I think that would have just added another terrifying layer right. to it especially knowing lynch he would have done that actually pretty terrifying because even a helium voice that might sound funny but knowing lynch yeah it would have been something interestingly it would have been messed yeah. up yeah but saying frank's dialogue like <laughs> just imagining yeah. it yeah that's that's terrifying voice man yeah dude. 
yeah that's like they're saying there's a lot of horror movies like involving like children it's because like kids can be scary like in the right setting so like (laughs) oh yeah yeah, him with that voice like saying the things he says and acting the way he oh my god (laughs) that would be an interesting like fan edit just tweak the the pitch a little bit and then that would be fun distortion I thought it was crazy how much an influence hop like that's like a major change to the character and it, I don't know I kind of respected Lynch for allowing people other people to influence the movie just David Lynch seems like such a cool guy and I think mm. that, you know it improves the movie because Hopper's performance is like really great oh, yeah. like he just is like uh, to- yeah. you don't feel acting at all and it's crazy it was originally supposed no. to be I think he wanted Harry Dean Stanton and I was like I cannot see Harry Dean Stanton in that role no, not at he's all he's too nice I know it's like so that'd be disturbing too seeing him do stuff like that yeah dude. and I think he was just uncomfortable I'm sure he was probably uncomfortable like yeah I can't do that it's not that's not who I am because Dennis Hopper said oh yeah I, I think I'm I am Frank because I gotta play Frank so or, or something like that I was reading in the journal. I heard that yeah. line too that cracked <laughs> me up in, in the, <laughs> David yeah. Lynch is like so I don't know what to think about that or something like that <laughs> yeah it's just like it's oh, one it's of like those, a- <laughs> if it's an like early if it's one of the first movies you've seen dennis hopper in like he does the role so well it's like anytime you see him after that oh no no i'm scared now yeah <laughs> yeah yeah when when hopper told him that apparently david lynch said that he's like well i don't know if i want this man on my set then <laughs> <laughs> understandable <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say Drew brought up a good point about like, that's a good theory about Jeffrey's uh, um, like his his path becoming Frank, because watching it again last night, I was starting to like feel like, oh, so maybe. Yeah, maybe he isn't just a, a, technically yeah. a good guy at first, because even in the deleted scenes for the movie, there's a scene where he's right. He's yeah, I was, was going to mention. Yeah. Yeah, you showed me uh, Angelo actually uh, um, last year or the year before. Uh, he showed me uh, the deleted scenes from Blue Velvet because they had been, uh, I think Lynch lost the rights to them. Mm. So he had to spend years getting the rights back so he could compile them back and, you know, show the fans that wanted to see him. Um, but yeah, the, you're right. He's still at school. So it's before he goes back home to help with his father and stuff. Um he catches a couple like being intimate with each other, like in hidden somewhere. And then like, he like catches them and then he starts like watching. So it's like, what is he doing? Why is he doing this? And then if, if they would have left that scene in the film, I don't, I think it would have been like, no one could see him the same way because it, it kind of uh, frames the rest of the film in a different light. noticed that too there was another line i thought was interesting when linda rosalini catches him so he he ends up breaking into this woman's apartment that's supposedly connected to this murder and he has to hide in her closet or or, so he there's a little bit of they steal her keys but he breaks in he hides in her closet while she's there he sees frank booth who he doesn't know who he is at this point and he frank booth comes over and uh basically a 
sexually abuses Linda Rosalini and uh, they seem to have an ongoing relationship. He has leverage over her. I think in that scene, we learn about the dad and or and the, the husband and the kid. So yep. we learned Frank Booth has um, Linda Rosalini, whose character's name is Dorothy, Dorothy, Dorothy Valens. Oh, Isabella Rosalini. Isabella, yeah. To Conger, or Bella, dad. yeah. Yeah, Dorothy Valens. He learned like we learned uh, Dorothy's husband and kid are being held hostage by Frank, and that's how he's yeah. able. That's why she has to uh, put up with what he's doing to her. Right. Uh, she, he ends up getting caught, and Linda Rosalini. Oh, this is before Frank Booth comes. I'm sorry, I mixed up the order, didn't I? When Liz, Linda catches him before, and then he hides in the closet again, right? right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so she catches him. She does some weird stuff, and specifically, she tells him, "Don't look at me." At one point. Yeah, and so she comes on to Kyle McLaughlin, and in a really weird, like sexually violent way. And then when Frank Booth comes, we see him do the same thing to her. So we right. realize she was just reenacting trauma that's been put onto her, which is right. And um, but, but, sorry, real quick, when she catches Kyle McLaughlin the first time before Frank Booth gets there, she asks him, "Is this something you do? Watch ladies sneak into ladies' apartments and watch them change?" Right. And he says not before this or something yeah. like that to this victory doesn't say no and it's in a weird way it's like a really innocent honest answer because he's saying technically yes because i'm doing it now but i haven't before yeah uh, which maybe that's not true given that deleted scene but i also thought it was him saying in a way he doesn't know if this is something he does yet like technically he did and he's like maybe i will do it again so it's not like you, yeah. you in a in a the, the more the easier answer in a situation like that is for the pure person to get defensive go no no i didn't mean to but he like doesn't say he doesn't or won't or isn't that person he just says not before this jeffrey beaumont what are you doing in my apartment jeffrey beaumont i wanted to see you are you kidding who sent you here nobody i've seen you before i sprayed your apartment i took your key i didn't mean to do anything except see you what did you see tonight? Tell me. I saw you come in. I saw you talk on the phone. And then? I was undressed. Do you sneak in girls' apartment to see them get undressed? No, never before this. Get undressed. I want to see you. Uh, so that, I think, kind of gives a hint, too, that maybe there is more perversion going on under the surface. And, right. and he... Uh, you know, isn't quite sure even what he's doing truthfully. And this actually reminded me of a previous episode's movie eyes wide shut. Cause I feel like this is ultimately Jeffrey kind of being drawn to this dark seedy underworld of perverted sex and of violence and criminals and, you know, ladies singing at lounges involved with evil mm. drug dealers, you know, very, very like classic movie kind of romanticism, but but we see the true like perversion and messed upness. So so basically Jeffrey has this night where he gets to go explore that world in a real way. And Frank Booth's kind of like, you wanna you wanna be this guy and you wanna like try to come on into my world? Like let's yeah. let's do it, man. I'll show you what my world is like. <laughs> and then by the end of the film, Jeffrey realizes that he's not made out for that world. And and this dichotomy is kind of represented in his two relationships, one with Linda or Isabella Rossellini, uh, Dorothy, and one with Sandy. And Sandy kind of represents, you know, the wholesome world of picket fences and fire trucks driving by and, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and then Valens represents 
the dark seedy underworld of uh, you know weird you know crazy stuff and perversion yeah. and drugs and and he yeah. thinks that he might want the way i viewed it he thinks he wants the crazy under dark world and like kind of yeah. like tom cruise thought he wanted to be part of the the mass ball club mm. and then he kind of realizes it's not actually his like like i think you're right about the perversion but like i th i think he is a conf i think he truly doesn't know like i think he is exploring like in a way this is a coming of age movie where he is learning who he is throughout right. the movie as well and where what his boundaries are and what he is comfortable with in life and in the right. end he does choose sandy and we end with the same montage we opened with of the fire truck going by in an idyllic right. scene and yeah i think you're I, I love that point though yeah actually uh now that you brought up the the opening scene and how the ending kind of mirrors that if you actually like think about it the opening of the film kind of gives the whole context for the rest because you know you open with the the curtains open opening into this world and then it's the white fence the red roses the blue sky the friendly fireman just driving by man watering his lawn and like a fedora and like mm -hmm. a, like just like nice clothes like who does that and then <laughs> all of a sudden he has a stroke and then as he's like laying there and the waters like from the hose is just going everywhere on the grass it zooms into the grass and then it goes into the dirt and the earth and then you see yeah. the the critters just like um and specifically beetles too right because that will be important yeah mm. like crawling over each other and it's just like grimy and dark and and so death. it's it, like yeah he, so it's showing i, I almost like, thought they were eating a body like that's almost i felt like yeah. it was almost but it but i don't think that is true i think it was just symbolic. yeah but if it gave you that feeling then yeah it's basically saying like you know you have this nice beautiful town everyone is like friendly and uh welcoming and then but beneath that that town is that earth and yeah under, you know that that's the reality and death and decay and yes you know it, yeah and i think since we've spoiled the ending i'll jump back i think that theme really is pulled into focus and given a real arc when so <clears throat> there's really great speech which i'll paraphrase here and this would be a good spot for a clip so i won't try to do the whole thing but sandy talks about a dream she's had where robins pour down from the sky from heaven basically in perfect light why are there people like frank why is there so much trouble in this world our world and the world was dark because there weren't any robins and the robins represented love and for the longest time there was just this darkness and all of a sudden thousands of robins were set free and they flew down and brought this blinding light of love seem like that love would be the only thing that would make any difference and it did 
So I guess it means there is trouble till the robins come. This is that moment you mentioned already where Jeffrey is like, why do people like Frank exist? Why is this allowed to happen? Because at this point, he's so bothered by seeing Frank abuse Dorothy and it's like stuck in his head. He's getting intrusive, traumatic, you know, thoughts about it. And he can't, he's having nightmares about it. And so he's really troubled by this and can't reconcile how, again, you can have the perfect white picket fence and then the death underneath the surface and the bugs and the decay. So there's this idea, this imagery of Robin's created, and this is her justification for the good in the world. And she believes this will like happen one day. And that's um, when the earth will be like cleansed or something. But the end of the movie there is a Robin that finally comes. And at one point she even asks, where are my Robins? Where are the Robins when everything's going bad? Fuck. Yeah, I saw him outside. Maybe Robins are here. I don't see how they could do that. I could never eat a bug. It's a strange world. Isn't it? And in the robin's mouth is a beetle that looks very similar to the beetles that represented darkness and death and decay at the beginning of the movie. Mm, right. And that felt like literally like a yin and yang in that moment where it was like, oh, the, the death and decay that the bugs feed on and feeds that darkness and disgustingness is what feeds like the, the robins as well. So it is all part of like the the circle of life basically you can't have one without the other mm-hmm. right right and i feel like the last jedi ripped off uh in velvet because <laughs> there's a shot in last jedi where they show a beautiful flower yeah. or something and then it goes underground where there's like death and bugs oh, and stuff yeah. to represent again like the balance of good and bad with the force and i i swear yeah. to I, I saw that this time i was like that's last jedi did he ripped it I, off i did when we saw last jedi i believe all together mm-hmm. the three of us with yeah the yeah, yeah um i i did think of that scene in blue velvet when when that segment really, of yeah. last jedi came yeah that's, awesome. that's i was like oh okay <laughs> and both movies have laura dern in it yes that's, that's accurate. true yes that's, that's true, true. <laughs> the wonderful laura mm-hmm. dern yep were you, you, I think you were going to say some at one point, Angela, but I cut you oh, off. Oh, no, no. I was just going with what you're saying about that that ending with the Robin and the Beetle. It, it's just so beautiful. It just had that, like, because the whole movie is about, like, the, the the beauty within the darkness. It's a dark world. The, you know, it's a scary world. And, and by that end, it's just, like, that beautiful, simple symbolism of how a love conquers the darkness. Love conquers the evil. And I just love that little bird just on the window with the beetle. And they're just like, oh, look at that right there. Like, look at that bird there eating that beetle. And the robins <laughs> are finally here. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I kind of like, too, is, like, when Jeffrey finds the ear, at one point after, I think, after they've, like, had the coroner take a look at it, there's a shot, a long, slow shot that leads into the ear canal. Mm. And then it just cuts to you know something else and then the movie but then at the end right before the robin segment that you just mentioned caleb uh it zooms out again out of jeffrey's ear while he's Mm. laying on the on the lawn in the lawn chair so um it's kind of like when you go into the ear that's like exploring the underworld and the the underbelly like the journey and then now he's coming out of it he realizes he wants you know the robins back interesting 
Yeah, and you know, it's funny you say that. The ear at the beginning, too, is like the king, and like there's like yeah. gross dirt and like weird, you know, I don't know what, but just it's disgusting. The, the ear you're going into, and when he right. comes out, it's a living, clean, healthy right. ear, which also kind of plays into the, what you're saying, I think. Mm-hmm. Right, right. No, I was just going to say, did we also mention that the ear was the, the husband of Dorothy in the beginning? I don't know if we... we, we yeah, we can we get into... Do you want to talk more about... Let's... Yeah, it, do you want to run in with... Uh, let's get into what's going on with the mystery of the movie. The mystery that Jeffrey cannot resist. Or the perversion. Yeah, so we find out that the ear is the... It was severed from Dorothy's husband, who's held captive by Frank, or her, uh, her husband and the son. And Frank is trying to make her do horrible things with him like he's she's he's pretty much using that to like get to her and use her for whatever but yeah so that that is like essentially what is like you know what's kind of going on in in that world where jeffrey discovers and peeping through the closet seeing that uncomfortable scene (laughs) when frank comes in and totally just violates her and yeah well not not fun not fun to watch and rewatching, but it's uh no, no definitely adds no. to the painful. you know to you like yeah i hate this guy frank sucks <laughs> we want this guy yeah. to get it so but yeah so that year is is pretty much is what is sends the whole pretty much the whole movie is wrapped around that and, and, and leading to what's what we see yeah and actually something else you said i just realized this will take us off track a little bit but you mentioned that jeffrey's realizes he's becoming frank and it becomes like eye-opening for him that plays in too when he hits Dorothy. Like she keeps telling him to hit her. He's she's begging him and he won't do it. And then eventually she starts to attack him and he smacks her. He backhands her. Our good guy, you know. No, no, get away! Get away from my bed! Get away! that i too think is a moment you know that kind of illustrates that at one point i think when she's naked they like left her like by jeffrey's house i think and then they rush her to the to sandy's house to report it shocking and then yeah she says like he put his disease in into Uh, me so i think it's no it's a metaphor for just like the the sickness the, the the perversion and like you know just that it's like it's addicting like if you're involved with people like that you're gonna behave that way call for an ambulance and the police are on their way don't get the police stop it i love you love me he put this disease in me tell me it's all right i've opened myself to you tell me it's all right Sandy, please. Sandy. I'll get a coat to put on her. That that scene every time, man. That <laughs> when it's just, it's just like, oh, dude, right? As he's you know having this nice relationship with uh, Lord Ern's character Sandy, and then here she is, like telling him, like, oh, you're my secret lover, and you put this disease into yep. me. Yeah. It's just like, and just like classic compartmentalizing, <laughs> being like ripped down. Where he really felt like there were like two separate worlds that he could keep separate. Yeah. And like what happened in Dorothy's room, he didn't need to like really acknowledge outside yeah. of Dorothy's room. Kind of again, like you're saying like a kind of a bad dude it's kind of a frank kind of thing to do, you know <laughs> yeah, yeah and in that I, moment the worlds collide one of the only 
I wouldn't even call it a critique. It's more just like something I notice about the movie that never quite like sit right with me is right after that scene. She she forgives him like they're on the phone and he's like, I forgive you, Jeffrey. I love it. Right away. Uh, what happened between those two scenes? Like it couldn't have just been that easy. Yeah, I, I've always like, wondered. You that just too. found out this boy that you have a crush on that you broke up with your, you know, your last boyfriend to <laughs> to be with, like, and you're helping him, like, oh, you think he's a detective, like, but then like he's actually kind of just a weird, a weirdo that's like yeah. a perv and like probably a panty sniffer <laughs> or something, like. But then he like ends up the the girl whose panties he's trying to sniff, like he like catches him and then now they're in a like weird relationship too and then she has some guy that's abusing her and then like he's taking him on joy rides beating him up and... <laughs> yeah, yeah i have to agree with you on that because i don't know because it was a jump like every, every time i watch it i'm like oh right away like she's cool with it like she's like i'm sorry like it was just like soon after yeah. so i feel you yeah, i felt like there was something in between i'm not sure like not even the deleted scenes had anything that like yeah. links both but i do wonder if like there might was there something prior to that or was it just that's how it is and which is i don't remember the the main thing i remember about the deleted scenes is the one we discussed the kind of peeping tom peeping like, tom creepy, like guy when he jeffrey was observing the couple but i don't know maybe maybe blue velvet means something more than we think maybe is the blue velvet connected to a blue rose mm. or something Oh, we're getting to Twin Peaks. Maybe, now. <laughs> maybe, maybe like the the logic in this movie doesn't always make sense because maybe we live inside of a dream. Yeah, and that there are a lot of lines about it, it literally being a dream. I think there's one that's there's like the song, "This is a dream. It's my dream." Oh, yeah. yeah. There's I can't a lot of exactly what he said, but Dennis Hopper talks a lot about how we're in a dream. And Laura Dern I think too. even when when Sandy first mentions the Robins, when she's telling Jeffrey, like you know, the Robins came back, I, th she was saying like she had that dream. So yes, dreams yep, are definitely a dream. They use the song in dreams. It, there's definitely a lot of dream imagery, and it's important to the plot. A candy-colored clown they call the Sandman. Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is all right I close my eyes Then I drift away That song, man, I just think of Dean Stockwell now with that lamp just dancing in that uh, yeah. in Frank's little hangout. Uh, it's just so good. It's fantastic. And yeah, rest in peace, Dean Stockwell. You were you were fantastic. Reminds me of a radiator girl in Eraserhead a little bit. Uh, dude, that whole hangout yeah. is like totally something in like Twin Peaks, like uh, like Bob's like people. They're 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 uh, is it what do you call it, the Black Lodge? Is it Vlad or is it the yeah? 
yeah like it's totally yeah. they totally feel like entities in some weird ways too they don't feel like they're normal people that's what i was thinking is frank like one of those people kind of like leland palmer where he's like possessed by a lodge entity and that's why he's doing these terrible things like yeah and then is jeffrey like is jeffrey another like conflicted soul who's like a potential uh a, a potential uh, next host for that spirit for for context the lodge and the blue rose references um are uh, reference are nods to twin peaks uh, so right. so this is um, mm. talking about how this might connect to twin peaks in case you haven't seen twin peaks yeah yeah i don't know like um you know twin peaks is one of those shows where it's david lynch's kind of publicly known mm. project because you know people who were alive and you know, had a TV during that era, even if they didn't watch it, they knew what it was. Mm. So you could say Twin Peaks and yeah, they would, you know, yeah, seven times out of 10 know what that is. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just, I almost feel in a way Blue Velvet is maybe like a prototype. Absolutely. Because like the, it's set in a logging town, a small yes. town, logging town. There's a, it's a nice town on the surface, but then there's a dark underbelly. You know, and obviously, uh, Kyle McLaughlin is back. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of um, production and story things that are repeated mm-hmm. that Twin Peaks pulled from Blue Velvet. But part of me kind of thinks like with the way the Twin Peaks universe is with all these alternate worlds and like, you know, dreams, meaning different realms of reality. Um, could Blue Velvet just be one of those realms yeah and i i think i mean i know twin peaks was pitched as like a blue velvet the series like a, before they were uh about to like you know go into production but i but you also made a good point like the whole we live inside a dream man and especially if, if anyone has seen uh twin peaks the return the latest one that totally like comes to it, i mean have you seen it caleb i don't want to spoil anything on here if i wanted to I bring up anything so oh, I'll, okay. I'll keep it light but like let's just say there's a another person from an actress from blue velvet that shows up in that show and has a scenes with comma clocklin almost feeling like wait are they waking up from the right. twin peaks universe to another universe here that could be another link to blue velvet yeah. maybe i don't know or is like even if you're doing it from like a real world perspective like you know without all the weird alternate reality stuff is is jeffrey beaumont just like cooper's backstory like maybe that's how he became a, a detective a you know law enforcement yeah fbi yeah because yeah, they definitely play with cooper's like dark side in twin peaks like he's a good-hearted like he's the white knight like he's the the guy like i'm gonna be the guy who saves you like i'm gonna solve the mystery and i'm gonna make sure everyone's safe uh but you know, not everyone is that, yeah, that good, you know, like there's conflict in everyone, like regardless of how like just you are, yeah. there's always that choice to be good or to be terrible. They do play with that with Cooper. So, and again, and with Jeffrey as well, as we've discussed that uncertainty, like who, especially when you're young, like, who am I? What kind of person do I want to be? Yeah, and like I think anyone with the potential to be good like has the ability to be bad as well. So yeah, yeah that's totally. another con- connection I notice. Aside from like 
the music is very similar obviously oh. it's the same composer um lynch is, i was gonna uh, ask because i noticed that a few times yeah like, oh, this is twin peaks yeah lynch is uh his longtime uh collaborator angelo battlementi um <laughs> angelo? <laughs> another angelo another angelo <laughs> yeah like there's a lot of music choices um i mentioned uh in dreams by rob roy orbison like mm-hmm. his line frank's line he keeps repeating uh and now it's dark every time the lights go out or something bad is about to happen that, mm-hmm. it's just such like a lodge entity thing to say oh yeah like, totally. it's like saying it's like a little like casting a little spell like fire walk with me like mm-hmm. it's kind of like and now it's dark oh totally yeah Now it's dark. Let's fuck! I'll fuck anything that moves! <laughs> it does feel like uh, like a spell. That's a good way to put yeah. it. Because he's not, yeah, he's speaking to something else. It sounds like he's speaking to a higher entity. He's not talking to the people in the room at that point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, or the entity is speaking through him. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's disconnected like, from the scene. It doesn't, yeah. Is that you, yeah, Bob? It's the combination. <laughs> yeah, the combination of the the dark, the low lighting, and then the, the, the nitrous, like, is just, like, bringing out the spirit. And that's, you know. Man. Imagine that that's Bob possessing him too, or like some someone like maybe. Bob. <laughs> that's just like you yeah, know, maybe. maybe that was his first attempt before going into spoiler. Can't I don't know if anyone has seen Twin Peaks. So I don't want to spoil the the killer of Laura Palmer, but possessing before possessing that guy. So yeah, it's like if you're applying Twin Peaks logic to Blue Velvet, it makes you Adds see up. it even weirder. <laughs> yeah, it definitely doesn't seem like there's anything that. Uh, says it can't be connected no. to Twin Peaks, yeah. right? Like, I, I don't. I wouldn't. Well, I'm not an I've, expert, but I don't know if either Angela. I know you've seen Lost Highway. Oh, yeah. Caleb, have you seen it? Mm. Okay, Lost Highway is another David Lynch movie. Um, I think it's probably one of his least successful because I don't think it many people saw it. It had a really successful soundtrack because Trent Reznor produced it. Oh yeah, yeah, great soundtrack. Cool. Yeah, it was like before Trent Reznor was even a composer. He just, that must have been real early on the soundtrack or is, uh, is it scoring 97 mm. yeah so it, he wasn't even a composer yet he just produced the soundtrack he collected the music mm. for the movie music by other artists some by his own and then you know he did compose a few small like segments but it wasn't composed by trent reznor so the soundtrack was uh did really well but the movie itself wasn't very well known but at one point david lynch i think publicly admitted that he sees it as part of the twin peaks world and this was years before the return dang okay i'll have to watch it for sure and then i know even maholland drive one of his next films he stated originally it was supposed to be a pilot it was a pilot for a potential series but it didn't get picked Hmm. up but he was able to come back shoot some more scenes and then make it into a feature film but he said originally the idea for it was a sequel with Audrey Horn going to uh, L.A. to become an actress. Cool. Yeah, so it, it definitely started as a Twin Peaks. Like, Audrey Horn doesn't show up in Mulholland Drive, but it kind of plays into that same logic. There's like kind of weird entities in Mulholland Drive as well. So I think 
there there are those people i i think i i i believe myself to be one of these people there are some lynch fans that have this this philosophy about his work and um there's definitely a lot of evidence uh even as early as Eraserhead and blue velvet um mm-hmm. as how all these worlds could be one world or at least splinters of one world yeah and, and we've talked about before drew with uh like usually like when you see like red we always say oh that's like the red room or like because in, in blue velvet there's a red backdrop when she's <laughs> singing on stage and then maholland drive there's a red right backdrop when, during the opera sequence and then uh Right, and then uh, Lost Highway, the couple, the main couple, their bedroom is a has a red curtain over the window. Yeah, and yeah. So it's just cur- even the blue velvet curtains of Blue Velvet. Like, if you see red in a different light, could it look blue? Like, mm. I, I don't know. I, now I'm stretching, but oh, it's so- the curtain. The curtains represent something. Like, you, there's a world hidden. She Okay, so I did I did want to ask specifically Blue Velvet name of the movie she sings a song called Blue Velvet right Bobby Vinton she sings in front of Blue Velvet she wears a Blue Velvet robe Dennis Hopper cuts off a piece of it at one point it tears off and and I just wondered is there a meaning to it is there a, a, something to or is it just the right thing that feels right and just you know because it's it makes such an impact but I, I couldn't tell you what it has to do with the movie well the name of the film is a reference to the song blue velvet that's used in the movie so the song did exist before the movie so i know just the title is a reference to that but as far as like a symbol in the movie i think i if i understand correctly some people have like a textural thing like certain textures like bring them comfort or like different feelings or memories which we know frank has because he's always like rubbing himself with the the piece of velvet so it it could just mean like blue velvet is a reference to frank's like infantilizing of himself like he needs some kind of like warm like fuzzy texture to feel safe i i i don't know that's just kind of my take on it but i don't know if that's what lynch intended yeah, and, and I know Dorothy wears the blue velvet dress and that she's like the centered person of this whole movie in a way. Like this is all like kind of everything connects back to her. So at least because I, I thought about that too. Like what is the blue velvet other than like the currency we see in the beginning, the song and then her her dress, you know, because I've also been trying to like decipher that. But I always thought like, oh, this is just the, it's the, it's the robe she's wearing when she's at home and where he's peeping tomming, you know, so I don't know. It's a, it's a good one. So I, I feel like with Lynch too, there's never a, a straight answer to his work, you know, it's all just right. Like right. Feet. Could it just be like a, again, maybe it, it just felt right. Maybe it just yeah. was the right. Cause it, there is a distinct like feeling I get from it weirdly. Like, and there's almost something about it that makes me uncomfortable. I don't know if you guys ever get that, but like when she's standing in front of it and it's just like wall to wall blue velvet and even the opening yeah. credits and closing credits with the blue velvet curtain, it just is like, it almost feels like 
my brain doesn't want to accept that color on that texture. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. Maybe what it stems from is like, I don't know. This is just my, my dumb guy thought, but um, maybe (laughs) the the texture gives it some sort of quality where the lighting can never be even on it. So Uh, like you're seeing a blue, like, surface but it's shaded in ways so there's like you can see darkness on it it looks like it could be tattered or like you know splotchy like i don't know maybe it has something to do with almost like out of focus too kind of right it's hard to see the edges of it's fuzzy yeah interesting yeah yeah that's cool the blue velvet because the the song is the the original song is played and dorothy sings it twice i want to say in this movie so I feel like that's also like the song is definitely has some sort of big meaning to the film in, in ways. So I feel like that's that could go to that. So, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, too. And the song specifically says she wore blue velvet, which applies specifically to Dorothy's character. I always thought that was kind of interesting how specific it is, like on the nose it is kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see the lyrics. Bluer than velvet was the night softer than satin was the light oh well those lyrics definitely play into the theme of the film with dark and light right Mm. which we talked about yeah it's like the curtain or the dress it like kind of conceals the entryway to like that other world that darkness that you know evil Hmm. it's just kind of like attracts your eye and like kind of makes you interested but then once you're past the curtain like kind of in trouble you're in another world now Mm. interesting yeah there's another line that i think applies to the film ours a love i held tightly feeling the rapture grow like a flame burning brightly but when she left gone was the glow and i feel like that could apply to frank's character just Mm. like why he's so obsessed with dorothy yeah yeah maybe lynch just sought out to make an adaptation of what he felt the song was about yeah, no, and I, I know he uh, he fought for the rights for the song. Like I think originally, like the studio or the producers did not want to pay a lot of money for to get the rights for Bobby Vinton's song. So he was actually going to re-record it. I think. I think they hired Bobby Vinton to like re-record the song, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So it's still him. It's still the the song. Yeah. But it's just not the original. So they did a specific version for for the I, film i think it sounds the same but i'm not sure like i was reading they, they did do a re-recording and then i think lynch didn't like it he said like can we just buy the original song for it and just use that i know they were trying to recreate it for the film at one point. yeah and you have uh, Isabella rosalini singing it too so i felt like that was also probably a counterpart to use the song still in ways so yeah i think the song really does have a big weight yeah. to the film for sure right Okay, so uh, one other thing I wanted to ask. What's with the earring? Kyle McLaughlin's character, Jeffrey, has an mm-hmm. earring. I noticed that. Very subtle. Uh, my dad was convinced it wasn't there. And I was like, no, he has an earring. He's like, I don't think so. And I was like, no, it's it's hard to tell. But it is definitely there. <laughs> <laughs> there's angles where you can see it. And there's angles where it's very hard to see it. So I even was going through. It's almost like that uh, that earring Mandela effect. But it's like every time you look at his ear is it's different and it's interesting that it's his ear too Mm. which is a very important another motif used in the film the ears and just one ear Um, so yeah maybe maybe it's just like drawing just something something a prop to like draw your eye to that ear and like focus on his ear Mm -hmm. 
I didn't watch it closely enough because I didn't think about this till the end of the movie, but I want to go back and see which ear is shown in certain scenes. Cause I noticed at the end of the movie when he and Sandy embrace when they're all good, it's his non earring ear. And I wonder if it does represent what's uh, the yin and yang and which side he is in and indulging kind of. Yeah, that would be an interesting thing to do. Like yet another. Rewatch I didn't watch it, it at all. So that could be total bullshit. Just I wondered. No, no, that that's interesting. Like on an on a future rewatch, even yeah, like we yeah. could we could pay more attention. Like when he's talking to Sandy, like what side of the screen is he on versus when he's talking to Dorothy, yeah. uh, which which side of his face you're seeing. So yeah, the duality mm. there. And, and, and right, that holy crap! If Lynch like actually did that, like that's incredible so already got good coup back i mean the fact that 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 earring is there for a reason so like the fact that we're talking about this he already did something ingenious <laughs> the other thing the reason it stood out to me is it didn't make sense with the time period and the setting like it felt very out of place right. and that led me to another question when is this set i don't think i mean i I feel like but do it's we ever set... get any concrete answer? Mm-mm. No. Is there any real clue? No. Not that I know of, but uh, there's. I think it's set when it like was created, but I feel like it kind of has a timelessness to where mm. it doesn't matter. This is like the fifties. Uh, at least that's the impression. And and yeah, I wonder if it's almost purposefully obtuse about it because there's a lot of elements that feel like when we're in the entity room you were talking about. That doesn't feel like 1950s. That feels like 1980s. One of the guys has like a track jacket on, kind of, I think, like a colored, yeah, very sweaty. Yeah. And so I was like, and no one ever says a date. No one ever says, I references a a time, like something that would pinpoint it at a certain time. And again, this movie's a dream, right? And what do dreams aren't always consistent in that way either? Mm -hmm. True, true. And the beer bottles could give it away too. You give away the it looks like the 80s beer bottles you know maybe if we looked closer again there's like a sign or a document that would say a year and that's i think part of what's so good about this movie is like you can rewatch it several times and um it you notice different things each time so the fact that having just rewatched it we're already like thinking about things that we're gonna look out for in the next rewatch like yeah so and who knows what questions that will will spur? Exactly. Like we could even do a Blue Velvet Part Two. Like, yeah. You know, maybe. I don't. <laughs> if, we yeah, we've got stuff to talk oh, about. Yeah. I mean, to. I I know that you've probably Loggett's probably never done a sequel, but maybe. Well, we could and do we the could. First. <laughs> I talked about wanting to experiment with different types of episodes. We could do like a a revisit episode where it's not a full episode, but we just or like, hey, we talked about this movie and we've all rewatched it and yeah. have new mm-hmm. thoughts and just want to do half hour. If we ever do a revisit, we sh- uh, Caleb, we should watch Twin Peaks to Return so we could dive into the theory that we've had. Yeah, I'm, I'm also about to spill like even the person that's in there, and I don't want to spoil if you haven't watched it because it's it's fantastic. I assume it's Laura Dern. I hope it's Laura Dern. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sandy. Um, I actually kind of since Vlad mentioned those other movies are uh pretty much part of twin peaks i might do those leading up to the return because we were re-watching the old series just for fun recently leading up to blue velvet i feel like the return kind of without giving anything away it feels like where all of his films he did after twin peaks kind of feel like they could relate to twin peaks but 
or like not not even just after like all of his films in general could all like be related like i feel like twin peaks the return is kind of the confirmation of that theory yeah and it's almost like like a, oh, without cool. saying anything further but yeah it's just not only is it a continuation of the show twin peaks like it kind of like gives credibility to the theory that everything is one world yeah i think dope i love that i want to say the return is almost like uh a culmination of his work it's like almost everything lynch like you mentioned years ago like this could be his magnum opus because it's everything like he's done is in that show and even uh because you mentioned like fire walk with me like that movie itself almost sets like a whole new lynch after like the network screwed over his show his yeah. vision and that movie itself is, has become like that's that's the new lynch we get after that movie that's like the the new nightmare yeah, that's the kind of david lynch david lynch doing twin peaks but without having to make it tv appropriate yeah. <laughs> i know which i do admire and especially the return i was very like wow this this goes in like directions that i did not expect but yeah definitely yeah definitely recommend that we live inside a dream Let's talk the chicken walk. <laughs> yeah, the chicken walk, man. And see, that's me going back to the. Uh, what I was trying to say, go, going back to you uh, talking about like him being a young Cooper, and and we see like him being, yeah. you know, being an origin, being solving a mystery, and diving into his darkness. But I felt like that was like, okay, that's a Cooper thing to do. Yeah. That was very like out of nowhere. And like, <laughs> just to give context, uh, Sa- Sandy and Jeffrey go on a date, and they're just walking along, talking, and out of nowhere, Jeffrey goes do you know the chicken walk? And she goes, no, what's that? And then he does this hilarious walk dance thing, dance <laughs> he like move where he buckles his knees and just <laughs> like moves with his ankles. And just out of, it just happens out of nowhere. It caught me off guard and was so funny. <laughs> yeah. You know the chicken walk? What's that? <laughs> That's kind of interesting. <laughs> it's really like almost the goofiest moment of the whole movie. Like the only time it goes into like a real comedic moment. There's funny oh, yeah. moments, yeah. but it's the only like just blatantly comedic moment of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. This one is just like, it's just so out of nowhere. <laughs> but like in a way where if if the wrong movie did something like that tonally, like out of nowhere, <laughs> like it would have not worked. But for some reason in this movie, out of all the things that happen somehow it does not feel like it doesn't belong like like that's just part of it and it really made me love jeffrey i was like oh yeah well and that's when he's with sandy so he's you know he knows that she's like a good innocent young girl and like you know like she's like he wants to treat her well so like it's It's just kind of ear with no earring yeah it's kind (laughs) of like a harmless like goofy thing to do to make her laugh so I don't know. It's it's kind of charming. Like, yeah, it's yeah. very Agent Cooper's character from <laughs> Twin Peaks. Like, there's like another theory where if Cooper is the ultimate good, like, there's nothing wrong with him. If he were that person, what would his exact opposite be? Mm. It would be the worst person. Mm-hmm. So we explore that kind of side. Like, what if Cooper was the opposite of him? Mm-hmm. And. Uh, yeah so and then one in the middle too (laughs) exactly there's there's always like the reality like you are a culmination of both sides not just one or the other Mm. and i think that's also relates back to jeffrey like is he frank 
or is he the nice man watering his lawn in a fedora? Mm. Like, what? What? Is, who is Jeffrey? Like, yeah, it's interesting too because the nice guy watering his lawn in a fedora is almost is dying on the verge of dying throughout the film, which could play into Jeffrey's on the verge of choosing the darkness. Yeah. Well, yeah, he would have become like the. Well, I mean, you know, in those times when like it was like the, you know, the the patriarch, like he would have been the oldest male of his family. So he's if yeah, his, if yeah. his father had passed away, like he would have been forced to become an adult like early mm-hmm. while he's still Choose going to college. Who he was. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. he's probably like at most like he can't be more than 20 years old. He buys alcohol, but I think in the time you could buy alcohol at 18 uh depending on where you were yeah, yeah but so I, he doesn't seem older than 20 i was trying to add to that too that he was in the deleted scenes he seen in college and you actually have him like right. had that whole backstory that he had to come home and his and his parents said he had to use the right. money for the the dad and he had to like literally they stopped paying for his school or something and like so we so he's definitely in college like yeah. still in i don't know how when in college he is yeah, but he's, he's younger than tw- he's younger than 22 for sure yeah um, so yeah but you know if he lost his dad he would have been forced to like you know be the the oldest and like take care of you know get a job and take care of everyone like be an adult i want you to come home yeah 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 i can come home sure i mean for good jeffrey No, no, I, I can't. Well, I know he's sick, but I can't come home for good. Jeffrey, honey, your father's condition is very serious. It's gonna cost so much money. There won't be enough money to keep you in school. That's why I'm telling you now, so that you can get your things together and check out of school or whatever you have to do so you don't have to make another trip back. So, you know, it. I think a lot of that stress kind of gets to him. And then that's kind of like when he, that he finds the darkness inside of himself. And, and maybe like, creates an identity crisis. Yeah, exactly. Like you're saying, he, he has to become the man of the family now. And he has to decide what kind of man he's going to be, you know. Exactly. Is he a family man? Is he a... Or is he Frank? Is he, yeah, exactly. Is he a guy that, like, finds other people's families and ruins he's them? He's forced like, to choose... Yeah, expedited by his dad's death, right? Or near death. Yeah, yeah. But just like facing that, this might be the reality. Yeah, that's cool, man. I like yeah. that. Angela, did you want to add anything? I know. You're... Oh yeah, I was also gonna talk about. Like, I know we talk about like the music in the film with Bobby Vinton, but like, can I, I want to give it like like one of the my most favorite movie tracks of all time is. Uh, mysteries of love by julie cruz and it's like definitely one of the most oh yes like if i'm ha- like if i'm having a bad day or i'm just sad about something i listen to that it's like medicine to my ears and my soul just like just that nice warmthness and like like you feel like there's darkness is but she, beauty is, in, into it too is that sandy's theme i guess so more or less yeah it plays like when she's when, doing the robin speech yeah it plays like during a scene with Jeffrey and Sandy. Uh, so I guess you could say it relates to her. But yeah, I think, I believe Lynch wrote the lyrics for the song. And then oh, really? uh, Angelo Badalamenti found Julie Cruz, <sighs> I believe. And then 
Lynch was like, oh, I need someone that sounds like an angel. Yeah. And then, like, I guess, like, you know, he liked her voice. Because he worked with her. Did he literally say the angel line? I think so. Um, because um, I know he worked with her quite a bit after that. Yeah, like, Twin Peaks. Several times. Um, Twin Peaks. Uh, she showed up in Twin Peaks. I was going to say, so. it sounded very Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, that, like, he loved her voice enough to include it in the movie and then you know he maintained a working relationship with her throughout the years but yeah. and she's become kind of a, a, an essential part of his like right. aesthetic rest in peace julie cruz rest in peace yeah angela it's funny you brought that that song up because i was gonna say basically the same thing like blue velvet affects me in this movie but that song hit me in a really deep way when it hits because mm. again in the film we're muddled in darkness up until that point and and Jeffrey's kind of at his low point. That's when he's saying, how can this evil exist? How can there be people like Frank? And she introduces this idea of the Robins coming down mm. and with that music. And it just like really adds like this, like wash of like cold water or like clean water to the movie. It feels like almost where you're reminded why you're watching it. Almost the reason I called it Sandy's theme is I, I felt like it kind of represented. I feel like that's the, like what her character represents is like pure light or like purity and like again there's this motif of like light and darkness and maybe blue velvet being the darkness you know but she is really the, like innocent like she really like she's so deeply affected when jeffrey's other life spills into her life and yeah. like she can't comprehend what yeah. like that that's even possible that scene specifically so dorothy gets beat up by frank at the end of the movie she comes to jeffrey's house and she's naked and she's been abused so she there's like um you can see the evidence of bodily harm to her. She hugs Jeffrey and holds him and they, they go inside to call the police into Dorothy's house and to get the father, see if the detectives around. And she, Dorothy is clinging to Jeffrey. It becomes really clear to Sandy, like you said earlier, that they've had a relationship and Sandy didn't know about it. Jeffrey kind of lies to her throughout the film and implies yeah. that there's nothing untoward happening. He actually is pretty manipulative of sandy throughout the movie he's constantly pushing boundaries she has and and uh forcing her to go outside of her comfort zone and betray her father mm -hmm. sandy's character i really liked and i really loved the like the light like i think this movie would be a lot harder to watch without sandy and yeah. without what she brings to the movie because it, otherwise it is just darkness and like just like horrible people doing horrible things yeah, yeah such, such a such a beautiful impactful song and i love how it's also like they have instrumental versions like throughout the film. And yeah. Especially like towards the end when she's like saying she forgives him about the whole situation and that music's playing. It just, ah, it just hits so well. Yeah. Like we talked about earlier, like how did she forgive him right away? But then that that's playing like that. A similar theme is playing when she does forgive him as absurd as it sounds. It's a mystery of love. Like, yeah, we don't know why she forgave him. Like, yeah, you know, and like, yeah, maybe it's know. just, maybe it's just because she is like she does have like a pure love where she she right. did love him before and still does regardless of now knowing that there might be like knowing more fully who he is and it you know this did actually remind me of eyes wide shut quite a bit in, in a, a lot of ways and I, I did feel like it was reminiscent of the ending of that where right she's kind of seen him now and she's like okay like i see you and i still love you like that was hard to digest mm -hmm. but like the love i had wasn't based on you being a perfect person it was based on yeah. like you 
And so I wonder if it like in a storytelling sense, like a, a very like Christ-like figure of like pure light, like forgiveness, you know, or, or an angel. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. yeah. An angel. That's why I thought it was so interesting when you yeah, said how he wanted sound. someone that sounded like an angel. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Like she really is above the, the like yeah. judgment. I guess. Yeah. Kind of Sandy way. would kind of be like a humanization of an angel like figure yeah. to Jeffrey, like who's struggling with his own internal darkness. Mm. And then also like in indulging in the partaking in the darkness in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And even that music playing at the end, like when everything's like, I feel like this, would you say this is like the only Lynch movie that has that real happy ending, like a perfect, just beautiful, like everything is just kind of like comes to like, because I feel like it still feels dreamlike too. It also feels like he's still waking up from a dream. And yeah. Especially when the dad comes in when he have, after he shoots Frank, like he's saying it's over now, Jeffrey. That didn't feel like yeah. reality. It's something about dreamlike. <sighs> Yeah, that's another thing. Like, like how he said she forgave him really quickly. Like, after all that bad thing, like all those bad things happen. Like, if, is it even realistic to to accept this ending as something that could happen? Yeah. Like maybe we are seeing the impossibly happy ending that didn't actually, yeah, come to be. Maybe he's living inside of a dream. <laughs> <laughs> it does go back to the the dream opening like we said like and kind of does reestablish that he's resurfaced back into white picket fences and fireman yeah. waving smiling every morning yeah yeah because he gets a clean headshot yeah, on frank really good in that moment when he's hiding in the closet at, at the very end of the film which also has a very twin yeah. peaksy moment when he sees the the cop and the and the husband like their bodies like right next to the television it reminds you of something you'd see in like the red room or in, in twin oh, peaks oh yeah like it was just like well this is not normal <laughs> not normal seeing these pale guys just like like almost like statue figures in the in the room when frank walks right. in also do you know about like i was looking up that there's like a whole like abraham lincoln john wilkes booth like connection in this movie because like the, her house is on lincoln really? street and then frank booth oh frank, frank booth, booth. Oh, wow. and i guess the headshot at the end they were saying it's similar to abraham lincoln's like you know the way he got shot huh. in the head or i was looking at something lynch mentioned something i was just looking up like trivia and they they brought up a whole abraham lincoln thing they didn't dive into it but that got me thinking like, like maybe when i rewatch it again i gotta find all these abraham lincoln murder connections so i don't know just thought that was an interesting thing they brought up but yeah, the ending, he goes back to Dorothy's apartment and then he sees the bodies of the, the detective and the husband of Dorothy. And then yeah. he sees Frank coming in, so he hides in the closet, but he gets the gun of the uh, detective or the other cop, the dirty cop. And then he's hiding in the closet while yep. Frank, you know, is he knows that Jeffrey's in there and he, he just goes to the, the bathroom first or something. And yeah. everything's pretty much over at this point, other than Frank is still out and about doing right at this point, the pretty much most of the story's resolved. Yeah. Right. And everything, but yeah, he's hiding in the closet. Frank's, you know, doing his bit screaming around and he's about to go to the closet. Cause he, he realized, okay, that's where probably he's hiding. And then as he opens, it just gets that clean shot to his head. Like, really beautifully perfect but again is it a dream though because it's him. like <laughs> as he was the way he was holding the gun too was like are you really aiming because it just like happens but you know it's a movie so <laughs> i don't want to nitpick the the kill but it was cool it was cool to get a clean shot and ends uh frank and then 
uh, Sandy. And, oh, yeah, it's funny. Sandy's running, like, across town to the, to the apartment, too. I forgot about yeah. that. And then and then the father shows up. They both show up at the same time. And he even was asking him, like, Sandy's not involved in this. So I found that, like, dreamlike when he comes in and saying, it's over now, Jeffrey. Like, and he's, when he's, after seeing him kill Frank. So, yeah, it's a very interesting finale. <laughs> very interesting ending. Just to finish off that the Abraham Lincoln thing, I wonder if it's because like is Frank like John Wilkes Booth and Abraham Lincoln represents like this pure good guy that like who died of you know who's an innocent dude as they say I don't know but I just find that interesting I want to I want to when I rewatch Blue Velvet I do want to look for more of this whole Abraham Lincoln thing. Huh. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, I was gonna say I loved the performance of Sandy's dad, the detective. He was just so nuanced, and you could never read what because he throughout the movie there's uh it turns out that some of the police and detectives are involved with frank and his crime right mm -hmm. and so you're not yeah, sure who you can Gordon? trust yes yes yeah. in the yellow jacket the yellow man yeah <laughs> oh yeah who's also awesome but you you really can't tell how to read the the delivery of uh sandy's dad's lines because he's so right creepy sometimes but then also very reassuring at other times where you j i was always on the fence of whether he was involved or not yeah when you like when he first looks at the ear he's like yep that's a human ear yeah yeah <laughs> me up, dude. yeah <laughs> it's almost just like is he like this because like he's just so like such a hardened detective that he's like seen and like investigated everything it's like not a surprise to him or is he just like Oh yeah, uh, we did this the other day. Oh, like, I already yeah, knew about this. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he's involved, but that would be an interesting. Like, I thought by the end of the movie, it seemed like he really was a good cop. Yeah, who, uh, didn't know what was going on. That was my interpretation, but it's not still not clear. Yeah, right. Yeah, I guess it could be like explained. Like, I don't know. I like to think that Sandy's dad is just a good good cop. Yeah. So. I think I do too. Same. And I mean, who knows his history with Frank? Because we find out Frank is uh, the crooked cop, right? Is that what, that's what we, he discovers and he sees the pictures or he knows of Frank when he was showing him. It's the well dressed man. The well dressed is man. Frank in disguise. Yeah. Yeah. But the crooked cop is, is actually like, I believe, a detective's partner. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like Jeffrey could have two role models in this movie like Sandy's father, Detective, Detective Williams, mm. and then Frank. Like depending on which side we want to do earring side or clean ear side, which which mentor is Jeffrey gonna want to learn from? Yeah, and Frank was trying to take him out too for a nice night in a way. He was like, "What yeah. kind of beer do you like? What do you yeah, want?" Exactly. He he, yeah. he gave him a drink. He bought him a drink, and then he kissed him. Yeah, they had a party. Like they all partied and had a had a rough night. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's what happens if you're role modeling the darkness, right? That's like the kind of lifestyle yeah, you're gonna have. Well, yeah, dipping his toes in the devil's water. <laughs> I think during the joyride, like Frank says, like you're like me. I see it now. Like, yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> you're like me. <sighs> yeah. So it's like, oh, I'm showing like this is like my apprentice now. This is my yeah, my this is the darkness in him. My uh, real. I'm gonna teach him to be a real bad man. Like, 
the light side or the dark side of the force. <laughs> yeah. And then Detective Williams is just like, I'm just trying to stop these people. Can you just stop like fucking with my kids? Yeah. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> also forgot to mention uh the great Jack Nance was in uh Frank's gang from Eraserhead he and, and Twin Peaks. And Brad Dourif too. Yeah, Chucky. Yeah, they were uh, two two of uh two of Frank's uh guys. His buddies, little henchmen, yeah, I, I guess. That's up. right. Brad Dorf was also in Dune as well. I keep forgetting, like that's another Lynch thing he did prior to Blue Velvet. Yep. Yeah, crazy, crazy cast. <laughs> well, the DP of this was Frederick Elms. He also shot Eraserhead, ah. uh, another Lynch film. He shot Coffee and Cigarettes, Broken Flowers, Key, mm. New York. So that's some interesting oh, wow. ones. Uh, did a lot of Del Rey music video. That's funny. interesting. Um, He's a good DP. So kind of kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Got a good filmography. Yeah, and the editor's name is. Dwayne Dunham. Yeah. Looks like he's done a few other Lynch things, but do- hasn't done a ton of stuff. Oh, he edited episode six of Star Wars, Return of the Jedi. That's kind of crazy. That was his second movie. Wait, Return of the Jedi? His first really? movie was more more American Graffiti. He was uncredited. Ah, so he's but, a Lucas uh, guy. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I guess so. And that's crazy that Lynch was supposed to direct Return, or in talks to direct Return of the Jedi. So there must be huh. a whole connection. Yeah, that there. is interesting. Huh. That is, that's a fascinating trivia. Maybe in an alternate cool. reality, they would have made a Star Wars movie instead of Dune. I feel like that would have been like that movie that replaced it. <laughs> I would really kill to see Lynch's Star Wars. Yeah, you know? Oh, yeah. Cause what a fascinating movie that would probably be. Because even Jabba's Palace was like dark and scary, but imagine Lynch doing that with all those creature designs. It would have been a horrifying... Like, oh, my scene. God. Salacious B. Crumb would have like... <laughs> just killed luke like as soon as he showed up <laughs> or, uh, or the rancor but like lynch style oh it's my god like... yeah dagobah i feel like i want to see lynch's dagobah Whoa. oh yeah that's right dagobah. Is he... and like how he would do yoda because yoda is kind of creepy at the beginning oh yeah yeah, yeah. kenobi is a ghost like uh-huh. he would have had to put a ghost in his movie <laughs> And they wouldn't have made him sit on that log right next to him. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like, he's a ghost, but why does he have to sit down? <laughs> oh. <laughs> His legs still get tired. <laughs> he's just an old old man. <laughs> but I'm happy that, you know, his, you know, we got this movie and I'm happy he had creative freedom to do this movie because he says in the behind the scenes that, like, yeah, hadn't had this much creative freedom since Eraserhead. So... To him, it feels like this is more right. like his true, like, true work of you know his own work. Right, right. I guess uh, we're pretty close. I've I've pretty much think I've covered everything. Anything else? Any just any subject you want to hit before we wrap up? Any cool facts? Any last thoughts on Blue Velvet? I was gonna say it's crazy that uh, the original casting they wanted Helen Mirren to play Dorothy. That was like one of Lynch's. Really? Uh, and actually, I think Lynch was the one talking to. Rosalini, like, oh, do you have her phone number or something before he even asked her to, <laughs> to play it? And she's like, I'm, I'm an actress. I don't give actresses, other actress phone numbers out. I was having dinner with a friend of mine in a restaurant here in New York, and David was having dinner with a friend of his in the same restaurant. And our friends knew each other, so they introduced each other. And so my friend Camilla and I sat at David's table. David started to talk about uh, being in New York to do some casting. And uh, he wanted Helen Mirren, 
for Dorothy Valance, and I had just finished a film with Helen Mirren. And so he said, oh, can you talk to her about playing this part? I really want her to play this part, but I didn't know Helen that well, so I said, I, I don't know that I can do that. And so we talked a little bit, you know, like I knew he was there casting, and then I don't know what we talked about, chit-chatting. And then the next day, or two days after, um, there was a note from David saying, um, after dinner, I thought that maybe you'd like to read the script and you would like to test for the role. The things that struck me about her in the, uh, in the beginning was I wanted Dorothy to be um, uh, beautiful, but have a, have a mis mysterious quality and um, a, a, a vulnerable uh, quality within the, the mystery. <laughs> and then also, I think the original casting, they, the first casting for Sandy was Molly Ringwald, but they, she turned it down because of the screenplay, saying this is not, this is too dark oh, for her. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Even though she doesn't do much, her character won't be, you know, but I guess the, the subject matter, I don't know. Maybe it's just the whole, like, subject, uh, yeah. Being like attached. But, which a lot of people <laughs> didn't get it when it came out. It was, I, I listened to a few reviews of people just being like, yeah, that movie bothered me. Why? Why did you make it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. The, the, yeah, especially the impact back then was seemed divided. Like seemed like a divide critics. Like famously on even on the the DVD or Blu-ray of uh, Blue Velvet has the 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 fa in, infamous Roger Ebert review on on the film. He was yeah. very very like not nice about the movie and really a little too like all right man like calm down come relax you know <laughs> don't say it like it destroyed you. you yeah, know? it's like come on. Yeah. Like you've never seen a dark movie before? <laughs> yeah. Blue Velvet is a movie that really challenges you to think about your reactions to it. And my reaction is, I think this movie is cruelly unfair to its actors. It was directed by David Lynch, the same man who made Eraserhead and Dune. And he's a talented director. You can see that here in scenes that have a lot of power. But he asked Isabella Rossellini in this movie to be undressed and humiliated on the screen, as few actresses ever have been, certainly in non-porno roles. And then he tries to take the edge off her shocking scenes by turning the whole thing into some kind of a joke. Well, either this material is funny, in which case you don't take advantage of your stars, or it isn't funny, in which case it shouldn't have so much campy and adolescent dialogue along with the really powerful sexual scenes. Sure, the movie's well made, but the more I thought about it, the less I liked it. Well, I liked it, and I thought about it a lot. And I think mm -hmm. you may be on the wrong tack in trying to feel sorry for Isabella Rossellini, because after all, she consented to do what she did on the screen, number one. Number two, I'm sure she's walking around wherever she lives, New York City or whatever, and survived the whole experience, just like Janet Lee survived the shower scene in Psycho. So I don't think that that's pertinent. People seem to be like put off by all of Isabella Rossellini's scenes, which I guess for the time I could see that being like, oh, that, that's a lot. But I think she herself wasn't as like... I mean, I'm sure she was probably, I think I was reading that she was scared to show this to her family or like friends of her that she was in mm. this. And I think they were during the filming, they had like families in, on the set or something when she was nude. And it was like, no, they can't be here. They can't see me like this. You know? So I don't know. Yeah, that's weird. very interesting. <laughs> yeah. When I read the script, I thought it was very original. I thought it was very powerful. I loved uh, Dorothy Valance and I knew that it was going to be a role that was difficult to play. And so... Um, I asked David Lynch if we could do a really thorough test, not a 10 minutes, and, and if I could also test with Kyle McLallan, who was cast as the lead. We went, Kyle and I, and we played all the scenes. We improvised. I mean, some of it I knew the dialogue, some of it I, I didn't remember the dialogue, but at least I could show David what was my interpretation of, of Dorothy Valance and if it agreed with it. In the beginning, it's, um, 
it's sort of all over the place. The early rehearsals are are very rough, and, and they're they're sort of frightening because you wonder if it's ever going to come down to fitting uh, what you have in your mind. I thought it was I was I appreciated hearing that she had a good experience on the movie because you know those type of things can be done. You you hear about some of these stories, and the director wasn't always cool about how they did stuff, right? And so it sounded like she did have a positive experience and was very okay, knew what the movie was and understood what, what her role was and why the bigger picture. Yeah. I remember like uh, her stating that she felt very well, like cared for on the set of the film. Um, It wasn't like, you know, some of these like horror stories you hear about Kubrick and like Hitchcock where they like just straight up abuse their actors yeah i've never heard like anyone say anything about lynch like being abusive or like mistreating Mm. the people he works with like he might like not agree with them or like he might like get annoyed with them but yeah he never like i've never heard anyone say anything ill of him like truly bad about him speaking of him getting annoyed it just reminded me of that clip from twin peaks where he says why the fuck can't a scene be 20 minutes long? Oh, who the fuck cares? The behind the scenes, <laughs> or <something> yeah. Like <laughs> somebody yeah. was saying it was too long or something. And you're just like, like, yeah. <laughs> like why? <laughs> I love that. Can I try to do a close-up on Candy still? Yeah, if you want to cut the time down. What is this with everybody? No, 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 no. What is it? It's really? I'm serious. Fucking A, man. It drives me nuts. Who gives a fucking shit how long a scene is? Okay. Now let's see here. It's like, yeah, it's like, why'd I have to film for it? Because it's short. Because he wanted to, he was focusing on a scene, and I guess, like, you know, he was being pressured for time to, like, finish it right away. And he's like, no, he needed more, a lot more time. Why do you have 45 minutes to do this or something? Oh, yeah. And an interesting fact, I didn't know, I didn't know this, but I guess right after the movie that she and Lynch were engaged for a couple years, for a few years. Or yeah, still I know they were together for a bit. That blew my mind. Like after watching it again, I'm like, wait, I yeah. didn't know that. That kind of yeah. Yeah, she was uh, she was also in uh, Wild at Heart briefly too. Yeah, so, like, yeah, they were hanging out for a bit. Yeah, yeah. She, I think she was even supposed to be Josie Packard. Oh, was at she? Into. I I think so, but like obviously, like you know she didn't play that character but i yeah i, I don't know that. like why but they were definitely were working together and then seeing each other yeah uh, so that confirms they had a great relationship then on, on that movie so so no harm on her right. <laughs> cool well on that note should we uh turn towards wrapping up you guys sure. cool yeah Sure. We can keep going. I don't I care. Know. I just don't think I have anything. We can, uh, yeah, if we go too long, we'll probably just like run out of going circles and <laughs> or just this. like go off on too many tangents where it's not even about blue velvet. I know. We'll just be on Twin Peaks rabbit holes, honestly. I feel like that's where my mind would yeah, be dude. going. Well, maybe once I catch up on Twin Peaks, we can do a Twin Peaks episode. And I would love that. And then we could talk about Blue Velvet. From yes. The other, from the other side. Yeah, yes. And even, uh, well, he counts Twin Peaks The Return as a movie. It's an 18 hour film. He wrote it as a, a long screenplay. Absolutely. So we could say that's, we could log, because you, you could log in on Letterboxd. Oh, yeah. Uh, that movie. It's on my, yeah. So I think we could do that one. I, I think it'd be, okay. I think it'd be valid. We could, um, yeah. So yeah. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Well, especially because, like, it was made by an actual filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Yeah. 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 And if he says if he says that's his intention, then I I count it. Vlad, this was fucking awesome, dude. Absolutely, man. Yeah. I this was a fun first time experience for me. Like, I'd never really done a podcast before. Like, I've edited like recordings together and like, but yeah, nothing like this. This is fun. Like in real time, just chatting with you guys about a movie and i i I definitely want to come back so hopefully i've uh behaved myself well (laughs) we'll see we'll review the footage (laughs) got it it's been so much fun man yeah thanks for coming on yeah man yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah it was a blast talking to you about blue velvet and i really appreciate what you brought to it man because it was a this was a fun one this is great yeah we'll definitely have you back twin peaks and and maybe more uh but i i think that's a great idea to, to follow up kind of with that and i'm i'm re-inspired to get to the return well this is awesome you guys let's wrap up with favorite lines just shout them out and now it's dark <laughs> yeah it's so good man it's a strange world isn't it which i say all the time actually yeah. to myself so i relate to that <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go with uh, see that clock on the wall in five minutes. You are not going to believe what I told you, which is just hilarious to me. It's such a weird <laughs> oh, yeah. way. To, it's like, like why would you thing. say it that <laughs> way? <laughs> just say it like, I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> yeah. I'm about to blow it. Yeah, so it, just, it was a fun little uh, uh, like riddle almost. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right, well, Vlad, this is awesome. Do you want to shout out your socials again, if you'd like to? Yeah, if you want to find me, um, I'm on Instagram at Vlacinda underscore Stormdrain. So I keep everyone up to date about what I'm working on. Yeah, follow him there. You guys check it out. And we, uh, uh, he has a couple zines that are out right now. So check those out. Support art. Everybody, go watch a movie. Go watch a movie. Go watch a movie. You're part of the lot. <laughs> <you know. laughs> Thanks, everybody who's still listening. See you next week.